Hi there, everybody. Dave here. And before we get into talking about Final Fantasy IX today, I want to shout out a cool group of people. Some personal heroes of mine like Chris Nelson, the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Zolgeek, Colby Moyer, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Jill, Kieran, and ZNA have all gone to patreon.com slash Jackson and supported the Tube Podcast Network. I thank you very much, and you listeners can be just like them. If you head to patreon.com slash Jackson, you will have my eternal gratitude and some cool treats in return. All right, on to Final Fantasy IX. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog, a video games podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to talk about a game we played. And I have two wonderful guests with me today. They are both friends of the show. First up, we have a co-host of the Pixel Project radio podcast and pickle enthusiast Rick Firestone. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Doing good, man. Happy to have you back on the show. And we're also joined today by first-time guest on the show, host of a Random Gamers Corner podcast and Chocobo Wrangler, Alejandro Ortiz. Welcome. Hello, everyone. And yeah, happy to be on here for the first time. It's great to be here. And yeah, just can't wait to get into it. Yeah, I had to assemble an all-star crew to talk about today's game, which is Final Fantasy IX, a JRPG developed and published by Square for the PlayStation in the year 2000. In the year 2000. All right, I'll stop now. Uh, Elevator pitches for Final Fantasy IX. If you're not familiar with this particular entry in the series, uh, I'll go first with my elevator pitch. And after a few entries in sci-fi land with brooding teen protagonists, this is a a return to the series roots with a horny teen protagonist with a tail. How about you guys? What do you have for an elevator pitch for Final Fantasy IX? Uh, sure, I'll I'll jump in next <clears throat> with with mine. So, if I had to give an elevator pitch of this game, I might say everything that is the essence of what brought Final Fantasy into its prominence is not only on full display in Final Fantasy IX, but is so in its purest form. From its setting to its themes to its sound and aesthetics, it is a pure expression of what made Final Fantasy into what it was and is. It is, in my opinion, the finest expression of Final Fantasy, and while not the most important or flashy, the best one. High praise at the beginning of the episode from Rick there. Alejandro, how about you? Elevator pitch. Okay, I'm just like throwing off the top of my head, but if you want to play a game that seems like all fun and cheery, and then slowly see terrible events unfold in front of you, and once (laughs) you think, oh, okay, this is it, this has to be the final bit, and then it could still get worse. That's pretty much the epitome of that. Things could get worse. And <laughs> you'll have a great time too. Like you'll fall in love with it while also like slowly realize like, oh, okay, there's gonna be a lot of therapy after this. It's a great game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um we're gonna get into how things are possibly getting worse. Uh first I will get into the spoiler policy for today's episode. 
Uh, this will be a regular episode of the show. This game has a story with lots of um, interesting, cool, and divisive plot beats. So we're not going to spoil those until we warn you much later in the episode. So if you don't want to be spoiled on the plot of Final Fantasy IX, make sure you look down in the show notes for a timestamp for the spoiler wall. Before we get into talking about Final Fantasy IX, though, um, I want to give both of my guests a chance to talk about uh, what they're doing out there in podcast land. And first up, we'll go to Rick. Rick has been on the show several times before. Um, If you've listened to the show, you may know what Pixel Project Radio is doing, but I will kick it to Rick so he can explain it himself. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, I'm happy to be back as always. This is continually one of my favorite shows to guest on, so happy to be here. Um, yeah, if you're a returning listener, there's a good chance that you've heard me before and you kind of know what to expect in terms of, uh, my loquaciousness. Uh, there's a $25 (laughs) word for you, but, um, Pixel Project Radio is a podcast that is devoted to doing some of the same stuff that Dave does here. Um, we're, we're moving into more of a book club style where we play through a game and discuss its narrative, its thematic material, its mechanics, and it's a development history. It's a really good time. Um, we've done some cool episodes like Night in the Woods is now uh, has now become a perennial favorite of our guests uh, and listeners, as well as uh, some games that are off the beaten path, like a little game called Everything, which uh, always <laughs> plays a trick on Dave when it goes on sale on Steam. Every time. Wario 64, you motherfucker. <laughs> Everything on sale on Steam. $2. My lizard brain cannot handle that joke. It gets me every time. Um, yeah, f- uh, Pixel Project Radio, I say this every time, but it's in my uh, listening rotation every time there's a new episode. I was just on a couple of episodes about Chrono Trigger. If you want to go get uh, a nice place to start to find out what kind of makes Pixel Project Radio different from Tales from the Backlog here, there's a good place to start. And the other guest today is, like I said, Alejandro Ortiz from A Random Gamer's Corner, a professional chocobo wrangler. So Alejandro, first time on the show, what is going on over on A Random Gamer's Corner? Absolutely nothing because, well, <laughs> we're just still waiting for episode 50 to drop. But other than that, like if you look back in the past, there are pl- uh, playing episodes where, well, living up to the name of Random Gamer's Corner, there's like random subjects. Uh, that uh, go from games that I've enjoyed or games that I just want to talk about with friends or review, sometimes whatever I've beaten recently, and sometimes even talk about adaptations of recent, of, well, talk about shows ad- adapting some games, and most recently somewhat was the rest of the evil show. Boy, was that fun to suffer through. But <laughs> other than that, I'm just... Looking forward to releasing something new for season three, where hopefully talking with a lot more guests. And I think it's going to be the season of Final Fantasy and Resident Evil because the, those games are definitely in the roadmap or whatever people call it. But mm-hmm. yeah, other than that, just happy to talk about those games uh, soon enough. And yeah, just to have a good time. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to Final Final Fantasy content coming there because while I know while you were playing this game, you're playing at least one other Final Fantasy game at the same time, maybe two more, which is just absolute sicko shit, and I approve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Final Fantasy X-2, and then, well, yeah, I've been in that game. And, you know, it's funny, Resident Evil 2 is the reason why I got to, like, now 
playing more Final Fantasy games. That weird connection, but yeah, now maybe once I finish Dragon Quest XI, Final Fantasy X can be focused on more. Oh, yeah. So it's going to turn into a podcast about the longest JRPGs. So I'm looking forward to that, man. And yeah, well, it'll be a race to see which gets released first. This episode, uh, which will be released sometime in like late January, early February, I think, um, or uh, your episode 50 that you're talking about there. So <laughs> it's a race. You're on. So getting into Final Fantasy IX, um, I want to start by talking about our histories with the game and the Final Fantasy series. And Alejandro, I'll kick it right back to you. Um, what interested you in playing Final Fantasy IX and what is your history with the series? Because it's been going on for such a long time. Okay. So going back to Resident Evil 2, after I'd be in that, I just thought to myself, wow, that was pretty satisfying. Getting to learn more about the, well, I guess the history of or story about games that mm-hmm. I, popular series that I never really uh, dove into, but somewhat still a fan because it only be one game from each. But I realized that I was thinking, you know what? I want to get more into Final Fantasy. So 10-2 came along. I'd be in that because that was part of my childhood, but I never be in it. And then afterwards, I just thought to myself, like, okay, what can I dive into next? And that's when I remember playing out a poll a long time ago saying, like, okay, what game should I dive into? Because our, our, I've already been in 7, I've already been in 10-2, so now, and then 9 was the winner. So I was like, okay, time to see why this one is such a classic to everybody. That's my history with the uh, game series, just that I randomly wanted to just get into it. And what a great decision that was Hell so yeah. far. <laughs> nice. Uh, Rick, how about you? What brought you to Final Fantasy IX? When did you first play it? And what's your history with the series? Sure. Um, so I've been a fan of Final Fantasy for really as long as I've been playing video games. Um, Final Fantasy IX was one of the first PlayStation 1 games I ever had. I remember renting it um, twice, two weeks in a row from a local video game rental store back when those were a real thing mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and, a, and a wonderful thing at that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I have so many fond memories there, but I rented it twice in a row and played it with a friend of mine. And it was I, I remember having such a blast with it that I and ended up asking my parents to buy it for me for my PlayStation. And from then it just, it it was really one of the first games that I ever played that stood out to me in a major way up until then. Like I was playing, I was playing other games like street fighter and virtual fighter on the Saturn and, you know, Sonic and, and video games were fine, but this was the first one that had a real story and that stood out to me and it shaped a lot of what I appreciate and love about video games to this day. Um, as far as Final Fantasy as a series, I've played all of them, 6 through 15, with the exception of 11 and then the spinoffs of 13. Um, I, I haven't got around to 1 through 5 yet, although I, I think everybody kind of knows what happens in number 1 at least. But mm-hmm. um, this game in particular has sort of just been a really formative game for me and something that I've played pretty consistently throughout my life i don't have the numbers in terms of hours for like my playstation one or playstation two or switch uh times but i know on steam alone i've got 164 hours in the game (laughs) so it's 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 something that i know and 
have lived with for a long time. Awesome. Yeah. And like, that's why I think that you two are the perfect guests for this episode, because we have Rick, you've been playing this like your whole life many, many times. Alejandro just played it for the first time. I played this for the second time to get ready for this episode. And uh, I just want to say the uh, the reason that this is the subject of this episode is that the patrons of the tube and Tales from the Backlog voted for this game in a Final Fantasy poll. Uh, so I put up four Final Fantasy games to uh, make an appearance on the show and Final Fantasy IX was the winner. So thank you to everybody who voted on that. And um, yeah, if you would like to participate in future uh, votes for games and topics on the show, you can do that by heading to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. Now, with that out of the way, I consider myself to be a fan of Final Fantasy. And it's a really weird thing because from Final Fantasy VI on, I've tried all of them except for 10-2 and the 13 sequels and the MMOs. So like the main numbered non-MMO entries in the series, I've tried them all after Final Fantasy VI. And I like less than half of them. But it's still weird. I consider myself a big fan of Final Fantasy. Uh, So when I was going through and I was playing, um, when the remasters got released for the Switch, I bought Final Fantasy X, I played that, and then I was like, hey, people like Final Fantasy IX, so I'm going to try that. I never played it when I was a kid. Never played any of the P- the PS1 Final Fantasies when I was younger. Uh, and long story short, I didn't like Final Fantasy IX really at all. And then I met a lot of people. Uh, shout out to you, Rick, and friend of the show, Eric, from The Unlockables, who love Final Fantasy IX and just talk about how much it means to them um, a lot. And it made me want to revisit it. You know, maybe I was not in the right headspace or something like that. And to get into some opening thoughts here, I was in a better headspace this time. And I did enjoy the game a lot more this time around. Um, I really didn't connect with it the first time. And then the second time around, the kind of charming, overdramatic, theatrical kind of presentation of the story and the especially the characters, their development and their their arcs and their kind of group dynamic really, really won me over in this replay. I ended up enjoying this quite a bit. Uh, mechanically, I don't like this game a whole lot, but it's not bad. Like I didn't hate playing it. Uh, so overall, I had a good time with it. How about you guys? Rick, you want to go first? Uh, sure, sure. I could go first. Um, so I largely got my opening thoughts out in my elevator pitch, um, but what makes this game so special to me is that it it was really conceived. It's kind of a platitude at this point, but it was conceived as a love letter to the rest of the series. It was the last game that was a single digit entry. It was the last game on the PlayStation one. And this was actually announced at the same time as Final Fantasy X um, and the PS2 was upcoming. And it was the last game that Sakaguchi and Uematsu were going to be sort of the headliners for. Um, so, you know, seven and eight were kind of going in a different direction with this realistic proportioned manga sci-fi style uh, that was set up as early as six. And the creator, Sakaguchi, and the creative team were kind of worried that that would deadlock sort of the progression of the series, which is a little ironic knowing <laughs> where it's gone today. <laughs> um, thank you, Tetsuya Nomura. 
But at, you know, at the time they wanted to create something that was like a celebration of all things Final Fantasy that kind of made the series into what it is. And as such, I, you know, I've I've said it a hundred times. I don't think this series does everything the best or this game, excuse me, does everything the best out of the whole series. I can think of some other games that might do different aspects better, but as a whole, I really think this is the best one and I'm including present day games along with that. I, it's just such a special thing and, and I really love it. I really love it. So would you say that this is your, this is your favorite final fantasy game? Definitely. Oh, w- without a doubt, without a okay. doubt. I, yeah. I think, you know, I, I think six and 10 are really strong competitors for number two. I don't really like either one of those more than the other. Um, but I, they just haven't made something that's, that feels so special to me as, as nine. Hell yeah. Right on. Alejandro, how about you? Some just quick opening thoughts. How do you feel about this game? Honestly, I love it. Like after seven, I, okay. Just, I didn't know, like, cause I knew that Final Fantasy like had different stories in each entry until they started making like part twos and such. But mm-hmm. when it came to seven, I knew like, okay, I've been in seven. This story was serious. Like things were like very high stakes. Then we got to 10-2. And I was thinking, okay, things could be very, 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 um, what's it called? I guess cheesy. Yeah, very cheesy. <laughs> fun. Sometimes like there could be some things that are cringy, but like still, and I could still have a good time with it. And then it was time for nine. So after that, I was like, okay, why do people consider this like the best one? And it was just like, you got a good mix of like very high stakes. Like things could, again, things go wrong badly multiple times. Then you got like a good sense of adventure. Like there's always like something new to explore or just like oh, learn something new about like the lore inside that world. If you like look, uh, look more into it. And then like you got a good, good cast of characters, like a really great cast of characters. Yeah, I mean, we do got like some allies that come into the game late, Amaranth, but <laughs> um, really fun game. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course, though. But like really fun cast. And the music, the music is so good. So damn good. I yeah. I love the music. And I was just thinking like, how is this not talked about more as much as like how people always talk about uh Sephiroth's tune and some other game uh I guess some other games, songs that play as well. But overall the game has been really fun, like uh straight off the bat. Yeah, and speaking of that music, we're gonna listen to a little bit of it, and when we come back, we're gonna dive into the story setup. So in Final Fantasy IX, you control a character named Zidane. Just going to get that out of the way real quick. That's how I pronounce his name, like the headbutting soccer player. Are we uh, Are we all, did we grow up pronouncing it differently? This is endlessly interesting to me, how people just grow up with these different pronunciations for these old games. 
It's it's funny. I, I was wiki diving today before we sat down for this. Um, and now that I can, you know, comfortably read Japanese, I'm realizing that I mispronounce so many characters' names. <laughs> um, I mean, I've, I've pronounced it as Zidane all of my life. Um, mm-hmm. His his Japanese name is actually Jitan, but okay. I, I think Zidane is kind of the English-sization of that. Mm-hmm. I'm um, trying to play in the game. I know, like, there's no way to pronounce um, pronunciation unless you're, like, playing one of the other games, I, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I sort of pronounce it uh, Zidane as well. Okay. Well, fair enough. I mean, I'm not going to tell you to tell anyone to change the way they pronounce a name, but um, the way that I always said it was Zidane. Uh, So Zidane is a uh, monkey-tailed teenager slash young adult uh, who is a member of a traveling theater troupe named Tantalus, and they are not just a traveling theater troupe, they're also thieves. And they're on a mission to kidnap Princess Garnet from the kingdom of Alexandria. And at the beginning of the game, Zidane and company perform um, a musical at Alexandria Castle. And then there is a a pretty cool introduction uh, to the soundtrack, as well as some of these kind of alternate game modes you'll be doing throughout the game with this sword fighting QTE scene where you have to um, impress the nobles uh, in order to maybe get an item later on. But it's a really cool and really engaging introduction to the story uh, doing this sword fighting QTE scene. Um, after that, they go to capture Princess Garnet, but surprisingly, she doesn't resist. She wants to be kidnapped. And so off we go. And this kind of story setup at the beginning was um, intriguing. Like I said, fun with that QTE scene doing the sword fighting. Um, and then also, once you get to that point where Princess Garnet's like, no, actually, I want to go with you. Then it's it's off. It's it's a really nice story hook, I think. Yeah, the beginning of this game is particularly strong. I think I, I think the strongest moments of this game are the first half, or maybe the first mm, 65 percent. But mm-hmm. the the opening is iconic. Um, once you realize that Garnet wants to be captured, um, she she asks you to kidnap her before you even get the chance to do it it immediately sets into motion this what you know what's going on like why why does this pr- princess want to be kidnapped what is what is going on here and side note uh tantalus i i think is such a cool concept like a group mm-hmm. of thieves it's it's like the robin hood and his merry men but <laughs> disguised as thespians and apparently good enough to fool the queen and royal audiences yeah. Which I think is just super cool. And fun fact uh, also, if you know anything about the Greek mythological uh, character or character, I don't know if that's the right term, but the uh, Tantalus from Greek mythology, it gives you a little inkling into what might be going on in late game. But that's neither here nor there. It's just a little treat if you happen to go wiki diving. Interesting. Yeah, this is like maybe the second time in like three episodes where knowing a little bit of ancient, I think it's Greek in both episodes, Xenoblade Chronicles three also had something like this, where if you just look up what that word means, you're like, Oh, I've kind of spoiled the story for myself a little bit. But anyway, so princess Garnet uh, wants to go with you and um, her mom, the queen Braun, who before getting into that queen Braun has just an absolutely hideous, like, character design. Um, oh, yeah. there are a lot of, 
Yeah, a lot of over-exaggerated, I said theatrical things uh, to character designs, facial animations, etc. throughout the game. Queen Braun is disgusting. Like when you first see her, especially you might see her for the first time in one of the like the pre-rendered cutscenes. She's gross as fuck. And it's just a really kind of cartoonish um, design that really like lends to the atmosphere and the kind of tone that this game, the first 60 to 65%, like Rick said, uh, has. It's really, really good. Yeah, that's true. Um, at first, you're just thinking, oh, okay, like she's just going to be some weird, zany character, like just trap most of the game. But then you realize her appearance, I mean, well, her actions later on are really going to match up where her her looks just like oh my god like i hate seeing her <laughs> every time she shows up on screen just to because i'm like okay what's the next disaster that's gonna strike yeah very like ursula in the little mermaid kind of like really reminds me of that just gross in appearance and actions so queen Braun uh, attacks the troop as they attempt to uh, flee by airship uh, airships final fantasy love letter like we said before um, two other characters named Vivi, who's a black mage. If you played a Final Fantasy game, Final Fantasy Black Mage, that's Vivi. And Steiner, who's a knight captain in Alexandria and personal servant of Princess Garnet, um, join and are and or are dragged into the escape. And these are kind of your main four characters. Throughout most of the game, other characters will have scenes that are like or arcs or chapters that are like, this is the chapter where we talk about Freya and her past, etc. But the main four, Zidane, Garnet, Steiner, and Vivi, uh, make up kind of the bulk of what I like about this story. Um, I really like how Zidane is not, this is not a story about Zidane. He's more of a glue guy in the party, kind of like keeping people's spirits up, uh, giving positivity, motivation, etc., uh, which is nice because, well, I mean, before I didn't get far enough in eight to comment about that. I don't really like Cloud as a main character. He's not very interesting to me. So I like the kind of turn. And then this kind of continues in Final Fantasy X of your main character, this not being totally about their story. Yeah, my my hot take is that the original cast of seven are largely pretty uninteresting, actually. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I like, I like Zidane a lot. I, I, he's a welcome breath of fresh air from the sort of moody, overly edgy characters in, um, Cloud and Squall. He, he resembles a lot more Locke from Final Fantasy VI, which might be intentional. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it's just really good. Um, and I agree. It, it's, it is largely not his story until, it suddenly is, but that's, <laughs> that's for later down the line. Yeah. And, um, the other characters, the other three that we talked about, uh, Vivi, Garnet and Steiner all have their own kind of arcs throughout the story. Uh, great character development, I think for all three of them, although you can't talk about final fantasy nine without just at least giving props to Vivi. So we can just kind of camp out here for a second. Vivi's story throughout the game as Vivi finds out that the black mages, his kind of species, his people, I don't really know how to categorize that, but his people um, are being used as weapons of war 
And this brings about a, a, a great theme of like identity that starts with Vivi and then lots of other characters have to grapple with this throughout the story. And there's a reason why when we talk about the best Final Fantasy characters, the best video game characters, Vivi gets brought up just as often or more often than any other character in Final Fantasy, the whole series, I think. It's justified, I think. Yeah, he's a cool character. Um, and I was like looking up TV tropes and idioms earlier today, and I was like, I just like looking for like little fun facts, or whatever. But in Latin, his name, uh, Vivi, this premier is like Latin for to live. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, damn, but that makes sense considering like his whole, well, I'm not saying his whole arc, but part of his arc is like to find reason to live or like how to live. But yeah, I don't want to get too spoilery yet, but mm-hmm. yeah, he's a cool character. Like I definitely see why a lot of people love him and definitely one of the most intriguing characters of, of the cast. I, I will say I kind of have grown to like Steiner's arc a little more than Vivi's, but that's, that's kind of like saying, do you prefer a Rolls Royce or an Aston Martin? They're both, they're, they're both just really well done. What I like about Vivi's is it um it, it takes this notion of the theme of life and death, right? Um, every character in this game experiences loss in some way, and Vivi's is centered around what it means to live and what it means to die, and it it distills these questions and notions brilliantly because canonically Vivi is I think six six or eight years old. He might be eight because I think he holds that over Aiko at one point, but um, he's a kid. And a lot of these discussions begin with him parsing through what it means to live and what it means to die and where he fits in all this. It, it parses them in simple language and it's, it's, it's beautiful. And his, his whole story throughout too is, is just very well done. I think it's less than, less than six hours maybe before you have a very emotional scene with Vivi on uh, an airship involving uh, one of the early mid bosses of the game and other black mages. Yeah. And not only does Vivi's kind of arc deal with, like you said, life and death and his identity and what that, what being a black mage means um, to other people around the world and stuff like that. You also have a, a nice arc of, Vivi starting out as extremely timid, unconfident, everything like that, and then gaining confidence as the game goes on. And there are multiple like avenues of character development for Vivi. And then a lot of the characters have this too. And like, I don't want to turn this into just bashing on Final Fantasy VII, but like, I don't remember getting that from Final Fantasy VII. I distinctly think about multiple characters in this game having development on multiple avenues. Rick, you mentioned Steiner. Steiner starts out as like one of the more unlikable characters in a game that I've played in a while. He's a, he's a dick. He's constantly in the way of the party going against their best interests all the time. But Steiner has a really good development throughout the game as well. I hated Steiner the first time I played. I just like, didn't connect with him or his story. But the, on this replay, I came to appreciate him a lot more uh, because he also has to deal with, you know, his identity as someone who works for the kingdom of Alexandria. His job is to keep Princess Garnet safe and how he grapples with that and how 
you know, in order to kind of fulfill his duty in the best way, he needs to go against um, all of the things that he would have tried to do at the beginning of the game, if that makes sense. It's a really good arc. There's He has a back and forth pretty early on with a villager named Morid uh, when Steiner is trying to gather information. And he says, I'm just trying to do what is right. And Morid says, who decides right or wrong? You, Steiner. Anyone can tell right from wrong. Morid, still green as a pickle. And that it's <laughs> that seed is planted and it's just expounded upon brilliantly. He, you know, he, he, he goes from having no autonomy to learning what autonomy is through internal crisis. It's, it's just, it's really well done. It's really well done character growth. You see it a little bit in seven. Nanaki has, has a little bit. Red 13 has a little bit. Um, you, you could argue Tifa and Cloud have a little bit, but you know, Sid, Kate, she, uh, they, they don't. Not, <laughs> not, not really. And not even the ones that do, not to the degree that Vivi and Steiner and even Garnet have in Final Fantasy IX, I think. This is, I think this is some of the best character work in the series of games that I've played. Yeah, I can agree. Like now that you guys pointed it out, I'm just thinking to myself, damn, did I enjoy the characters in Seven, like, you know, growing as people and i'm just thinking like well they're sort of like just fighting for a cause but it's not like they you really get any sometimes one-on-one focuses like you sometimes do with uh nine because with them it's like they're trying to find their identity trying to find uh what they're living for and sometimes you have to like change as a person while for seven it's kind of like trying to identify well at least for cloud trying to identify who he really is but even then, it's still not the same amount of like, well, I guess growth and just uh, setting up multiple questions on for people to just ask themselves later on when they finish the game in nine. Mm-hmm. Oh, what life is all about. It's something that I think Final Fantasy does explicitly well compared to other JRPGs. Like when when we're thinking of other JRPGs that are big, like uh, Persona, it's not, they're not always character focused stories, right? Like there's a story and there's a setting or thinking of Xenogears and Xenosaga, they're, you know, very focused on world building and very focused on lore, um, more character development and depth than Persona to be sure. But the crux of Final Fantasy stories are centered around people and how those people interact with their world and with each other. I think seven missed the mark on that just a little bit. Um, I, my understanding is that four does this extraordinarily well. I 10 does this extraordinarily well. 10 two does this extraordinarily well. Um, seven remake again, from what I understand does this a little better, but that's, that's part of what makes final fantasy so special to me. Yeah. And I think final fantasy six does this pretty well too, but final fantasy six has a oh, yeah. hundred fucking characters in it. So you, you're bound to have some where there's just not a whole lot going on. It's another thing I like about Final Fantasy IX. There are, I believe, what are there, eight characters? Seven? There's not that many. I believe there's eight. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty small cast, pretty compact. Another thing that I really like about this cast, and this is just a personal preference of mine, is that in seven and in eight and to a lesser extent six, 
characters were kind of blank slates and you could build them up through the various systems to be whatever you want. So Mm -hmm. cloud can be a brawler. Cloud can also be a white mage. Cloud can be anything. Same with everybody. Um, In this one, every character is explicitly a class. You know, you've got your thief, your dragon knight, your monk, your summoner, your white mage, which they split between uh, Garnet and Aiko, respectively. And I I love that. I think that's just terrific. Yeah. Especially when I think about, you know, Final Fantasy X does this for a while, and then you can turn anybody into anything after a certain point in that game. Final Fantasy VI is a total free-for-all. You can do anything with any character. And I like the kind of narrow focus here. And it does have a kind of reflection of their character as well. Having Steiner always be a knight. He doesn't turn into a black mage halfway through the game. He's a knight. Um, this story is told in a really cinematic way, uh, I think. Uh, there are pre-rendered cutscenes, as all Final Fantasy games from the PS1 on had. Um, but what I like about this game, too, are there's these things called active time events, where a character will walk into a room and it will say, press the select button for an ATE. And that takes you to a completely different scene with other characters It could be like one of your characters wandered off into town and you're going to follow what they're doing throughout the town. Um, It could be your party gets split up um, or you're split into two different parties and you're going to go see what the other party is up to in a totally different location. It makes it feel like following a TV show or a movie that's following different characters in different places um, instead of just focusing on the same people for hours at a time with no interruptions. Yeah, the ATEs are basically this game's version of Meanwhile, Elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are a little tricky to get all of them. Um, like I followed a guide previously to to get every single one because you can miss certain ones, which which I think is fine. I don't think it's a big deal that, you know, you have to pick and choose and sometimes you might not see everything because for the most part, it it, it is fluff. Um, one of the earlier ones is uh Cinna, one of the Tantalus merry men, can't find his Garnet stuffed doll. And he's like talking about how he was, he's never going to be able to sleep without it. Um, <laughs> you get a lot of that. You also get a lot of character development moments, though. Um, but missing any of these is not going to, you're not going to miss out on like large plot details. No. Nah. Which is, which is kind of nice. It's just character development. Yeah. Well, just character. You know what I mean? <laughs> Take it or leave it. Character development. Yeah. These are uh, these are interesting. You're right. Like, not all of them are super interesting. Some of them are just with random characters that are not part of your party, but they do kind of flesh out the world. And especially there are some that I'm thinking of, like when uh, you go to a village full of black mages and you get to follow Vivi around through these ATEs as Vivi interacts with people around the village and stuff, if I'm remembering that right. Um, stuff like that is really, really nice. You would have, you know, you would have either missed that or you would have had to go through and do all these conversations and follow Vivi around yourself. And instead, it's just these quick little conversations. It's funny you mentioned uh, that one specific area because that's the one where I missed, like legit, I'm pretty sure the last only uh, ATE that I needed just to get the Shiva. I was like, oh, well, that could have been nice, but I'm not going to go... <laughs> back to a save that was like two hours ago like oh i'll just take the l right there but i Ouch. again 
I know. It was just for the Shogobo one. So I was like, ah, wow. Of all the ones I missed. <laughs> kind of before we move on from talking about the story, just some kind of general thoughts about how we feel about this story. Um, for me personally, I enjoyed kind of like Rick said about the first two thirds of the story. And I felt like it came to a pretty natural conclusion. And then when it ramped up for the last third of the story, I was kind of checked out. I, I think this game's kind of too long. Um, at least the story is too long. Uh, I forgot to say earlier, but my second playthrough, uh, where I didn't play the entire second half of the game with fast forward and 9999 cheat on, took me 30 hours to beat the game. And I think if we made this about a 20 to 25 hour game, I would have had no complaints about the story at all. But I think it's a bit too long. The other thing is, um, aside from the praise I've said already, some of the side characters that you meet um, are really just, I don't like them. I'll just, I don't like a couple of the side characters. I don't like their stories a whole lot. And there's one that is like, kind of just doesn't fit the game. Uh, I think Amaranth just doesn't serve much of a purpose. I don't think, um, except to kind of reinforce something about Zidane really late in the game. So yeah. What do you guys think? Just kind of wrap up thoughts about the story. I, uh, well, first of all, I agree. Amaranth's a useless character. Um, I think they just added him honestly to get the check the box of edgy loner character and then also yeah. <laughs> get your party to a total of eight. So you could yeah. do the four and four and two, 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 two. Um, I, I disagree on everything <laughs> about <laughs> the story. Um, I, I don't think this is too long at all. In fact, I wish the second or I wish the last third of the game were longer. I wish it was expanded because the, now that I think about it, I've, I've been thinking about why I don't like the end of the game as much as I like the beginning. And I think it just has to do with pacing. I, I think that they try to put a lot into the last section of the game to wrap up Zidane's story, to wrap up the uh, sort of motivations of everybody. And it's fine. I don't dislike any of the plot beats, but it's just done too quick. We're moving through things too quickly. And, you know, 30 hours for this kind of game is, I don't think it's too long. I mean, you've got games like Persona that are easily triple that. And the stories are not noticeably any better, nor nor is the character development or world building. I, I kind of wish that they would have just tacked on another 15 hours or so to make make things um, not so packed in the second or the second. I keep saying second half in the last third. Yeah. OK, good point. That would be preferable to the way that they did it. And had they because I agree the the reason that the first part of the game works so well is that they let everything breathe. There's plenty of time to develop all of that stuff. And they attempt some stuff in the last third. And you're right, it's just too dense. There are too many long lore dump conversations in the last third of the game. So if they cut that, or maybe preferable, you're right, give that another 10 hours to just like kind of spread its wings a little bit instead of just tossing it into the, I don't know where I'm going with this bird metaphor, but you get it. Um, uh, tossing it into the fire for some reason. Like I, I think it would have been a lot, a lot better. I would have, um, maybe been a little bit more on board with it, but like that kind of makes it sound like I'm super negative on the story in general. And like I said, for the first 20 hours or so, 
I really, really enjoyed the story. So Alejandro, how about you? I actually could see both uh, sides of this. Like, yeah, once, because at first my initial uh, thought was, okay, this game could have like ended around Terra or maybe slightly after, but once it kind of like went on to like back to the tree and all that, I was thinking, okay, maybe we could have just like stopped. Like we could have ended the story like a bit a while ago. But then like now that Rick has brought up an interesting point about how maybe things could have been fleshed out, I was just thinking about it. And yeah, I think if they could have like fleshed out things a bit more and maybe kind of hinted about the final the very, very, very final boss a bit more, then maybe things wouldn't have felt so well, I guess not so jaded, but I guess would have felt so out of nowhere for like some things to like keep on dragging out and like why we still needed some more fights to occur. And I, I was, I'm okay with the story lasting as long as it did. I still had a good time. I wasn't exactly burnt out. I think like if it wasn't for um, if it wasn't for like the idea that okay, I gotta really finish this before the deadline, then maybe I could have like enjoyed the ending a bit more. But overall, it's a good story. Just uh, two thirds, yes, it was a great time. The last third definitely needed like a bit more polish to like just still shine as bright as the first two thirds. Yeah, and even in that last third. There was some stuff that I really, really liked. There's some really awesome scenes and stuff. It's not like a total shit show. It's just I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as the the earlier stuff. It's I, I've been watching and playing things that do pacing so differently, like um, Neon Genesis Evangelion and Xenogears, Xenosaga, Nier. Um, these, these all do pacing in different ways, and that's... Like, like as I was going through this game again, that's, it just kept hitting me at the end. Like they're trying to do so much towards the end and I get it. I get that they're on a budget and I get that they're on a deadline, but it's just, it's too much to, to do and try to wrap up so quickly. I mean, it's not quite as, it didn't turn out quite as, uh, interestingly as Xenogears or Evangelion, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we all have our kind of critiques of the end there, and we'll get into those in the spoiler section for sure in more detail. For now, we're going to take a music break. When we come back, we're going to talk about music and visuals for this game. So, Final Fantasy IX is a return to the kind of high fantasy type setting for the series. Uh, think, you know, knights, mages, stuff like that. There's no, you know, steam, steampunk things. There's no, you know, magical force being harnessed in factories to power the world or whatever. This is a uh, high fantasy setting. And I kind of, I really like the way this game looks. Um, we have pre-drawn backgrounds with your characters being 3D sprites that move around on those. Um, I like the way these backgrounds look a lot. Sometimes hard to see interactables or like, you know, a path out of that screen sometimes. Uh, but 
the times that those got in the way were not nearly as often as the times when I looked and I was like, this looks really cool right now. This is, this is good looking game. Yeah. They, it looks, it looks really nice. And, um, I, I want to take just a quick second to shout out the Maguri mod on PC. It is, um, it, it's something, the last full playthrough that I did, I used the Maguri mod and what it does is it, it fixes a lot of like tiny things. Like it'll give you full widescreen. Um, it'll lock the battle frame r- frame rate, uh, to a consistent FPS to make things not quite as slow, but it also gives an HD upgrade to just about everything. And especially the pre-drawn backgrounds look absolutely stupendous with this mod. Um, I, I really think it's in 2022 and 2023, I guess, depending on <laughs> when you're listening to this. Um, it, it's, I, to me, it's the definitive way to play. I, it, it's so good and it, it's done by a, just a team of fans. They're, they just did it. Nice. <laughs> Pretty cool. Oh, it yeah. also, we're not talking about music quite, quite yet, but it also gives, um, orchestrations. Like it rearranges the, the, uh, the music, which I don't like quite as much, but it is interesting. Nice. Yeah. The, honestly, the, backgrounds for everything it's just so lively like that's one thing i could say for this game is that everything looks so lively like for a game of its time it looks beautiful it looks gorgeous um it's just like the characters like really do like just you know live in the world like even the npcs it's just interesting to just like see them like walk around just like living their day to like day-to-day life it was just like so cool to watch and i mean i was just impressed with it overall mm-hmm. but yeah there were like some times where it could be a bit slow or a bit sluggish, especially when, you know, loading up for battle. So I was like, ah, okay, yeah, there, yeah, there, there you go. There's some age showing. But yeah, overall, really beautiful. And I was very impressed with how they were able to integrate characters for, like, uh, some of the cutscenes, especially the very uh, last one. Wait, not the very last one. Uh, the, the last one where, again, like, you got to save it. Uh, well, Sedan was trying to save a certain someone. Again, trying to avoid spoilers at least until the section, but uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that that scene was insane. So I was like, oh, "Okay, wow, that that's impressive." It's interesting that we're talking about the visuals and the aesthetics and giving it so much praise because that was very much something that people did not like when this game first came out. They um, and it, well, it was because this game came off of the heels of seven and eight. Um, and seven, you know, we were kind of hard on seven earlier. It's probably the most important one in the series and eight came right off of seven and had a lot of success. It, it, it's just to, to move away from that to something that looked quote unquote chibi, uh, which I don't think is necessarily a good descriptor. It's a lot of people didn't like it. <laughs> it is, it is a decent descriptor, I think, because the characters all, this is this isn't like bravely default chibi or something like that but the characters do have really big heads in you know proportion to the rest of their body especially on um not in like the rendered cutscenes but in their like in-game models you know their heads are pretty big everyone has caveman skulls they all look kind of weird i think but we talk about final fantasy 7 this game looks a lot better than final fantasy 7 which it should because it's newer uh, they had a lot of time to iterate on the PS one hardware and stuff. But yeah, I, I thought this game looked pretty good. Um, and just one more kind of 
a point of praise for those pre-rendered cutscenes. I really, really thought those looked great and more impressive than just kind of like visual fidelity in that is how much personality and animation um, they kind of injected into those. People have like really exaggerated reactions to stuff. Like I said, theatrical earlier, Uh, facial expressions, especially like Steiner and Braun are like the king and queen of facial expressions in these cutscenes. There's so much personality for them. And every time one of these pre-rendered cutscenes came up, I was like, okay, this is going to be cool. I want to watch this. Right. Oh, go on, Rick. I I was just going to say, there's a lot of detail in every single one. And whether there's a ton going on or whether it's just, you know, somebody existing in a town square, there's just a lot of detail. Um, And compared to like seven, uh, seven's FMVs, for example, it's, it's just stellar. It looks fantastic. Agreed. And yeah, uh, one thing I could definitely praise about this, uh, this game is just like, just the body language for a lot of the characters as well. Like it just works. Like they, they really do know how to make them like very express, uh, show a lot of expression <laughs> and just like, don't make them seem, you know, just dead. And what reminded me of like all the body expressions was just how at least in seven, when, I guess I'm not sure about spoilers for seven, but just like after a certain event, um, the next day when Tifa realized that, um, who was it? One of the teammates was listening in on her and cloud talking. She actually ran to the corner and started pounding the ground out of embarrassment. And I was like, that was pretty funny to me. And then like for nine, like a lot more of the humor from the bike language was just like, up a notch, especially when it comes to Steiner, like bouncing up and down out of anger at Zadar for anything. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's really really fun. Uh, just those cutscenes and the personality that it lends to all the characters. Talking about the music a little bit, this is the last Final Fantasy game to be exclusively scored by the OG Nobuo Uematsu, and this soundtrack doesn't get brought up a ton when we talk about, you know, when we, the royal we, talk about Final Fantasy soundtracks, I think, but it's it's an interesting one. This is a lot more of a diverse sound. There are a lot of different styles to the songs in this game. Um, you know, I think about Final Fantasy X, all of those songs in that soundtrack sound like, you know, Final Fantasy X songs, for lack of a better descriptor, except for the one during the final boss, which is, that's another conversation for another time. Uh, Same with like Final Fantasy VI, all those sound like Final Fantasy VI songs. There are a ton of different sounds and um, kind of styles going on in this soundtrack. It's really eclectic. I, I enjoy it. You know, you um, you have a note here in in your doc that says not many that you find yourself humming outside of the game, and man, I I can't 
I could not feel more contrary to that if I tried. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's just so many great melodies here, like Vala Flamenco, Flamenco, Vala Flamenco, um, the Dark City Traino theme, Zorn and Thorn's theme, Vivi's theme, Steiner's theme. Like, there's just so many great melodies here. And that's, I mean, that's always been one of Umatsu's strong suits is writing a memorable melody. And I, it's just on full display here. And his, his eclecticism, as you mentioned, in terms of genre is, is on full display too. I mean, you've got everything from orchestral tracks to sort of slow ragtime to a, to ukulele. It's, it's too cool. It's, I, I agree with you. I think this should be brought up a lot more in terms of a soundtrack. Um, I'm not familiar extensively with everyone, like, I don't know, three or five or, uh, 12, which I know is really good too. Um, but at least out of the ones that I've heard from Uematsu, I would place this one at the top. I think it doesn't nice. have my favorite track of all time, but I think as a whole, it's up there. Yeah. And I think after I wrote that note in the doc, I did find myself humming a couple of songs. Vivi's theme in particular got into my brain over the last couple of days. Uh, same with the, um, the one that plays while you're doing the, uh, the sword fight at the beginning. Um, it's, those are really, really good. I just kind of like, you know, we, we talked about Chrono Trigger for five plus hours, uh, in the last, like, you know, a couple of months, Rick, this didn't hit me as hard in like the, um, I don't know, in that same way as the Chrono Trigger soundtrack did, uh, which Uematsu didn't do by himself, but he helped out on. Um, and, you know, Final Fantasy VII has a lot of songs that like, when I hear them, they will bring a rise of emotion in me. Um, Tifa's theme does that to me in that game. I love the battle theme in that game too. And there's just a little bit less of that in this game for me personally, but it is a really impressive soundtrack in the number of genres that he not only fit into the game, but like made them into final fantasy nine songs. If that makes sense. It's not just like, you know, we got a jazz song going here cause we wanted a jazz song. It all fits. Do you, uh, do either of you have a clear favorite in this, in this OST? I do. I'm just curious if either of you do. For me, I would say probably the, um, uh, the one that plays during the sword fight, the do, 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 do that song. Great. For me, it's not alone. Like easily that one, that's what comes mm. up in my head so many times. Actually for the past couple of days, like ever since I've been in it. Yeah. That, that song has been playing nonstop. Yeah. This uh, soundtrack also has some nods to previous games. Um, specifically, uh, the opening to the battle theme is the same as the kind of uh, the old, older uh, eight and sixteen-bit openings to the battle themes there. Um, and Final Fantasy VI was my fa- my first Final Fantasy game. So that is when I first heard that when playing Final Fantasy IX. I was like, "Oh shit, is that okay?" It's just the intro, but like it hit that familiarity. Really, really cool there. And um, they he also does that thing in the soundtrack where the main melody or a couple of main melodies throughout the game are used in many different forms depending on what's going on in the game. So you might have a kind of more laid back and sad version of that melody, or you might have something that's a little bit more, you know, upbeat and, um, you know, happy, I guess, for lack of better music terminology. Uh, I really, really like it when composers do that uh, in video games. You have a lot of time to 
get familiar with these melodies when you play video games because they're so long. And I like when they keep bringing them back in different forms. Yeah, Uematsu is really good at that. Um, he he makes heavy use not just of like theme and variation, but of what we call light motifs, which is a musical representation, like a quote unquote musical theme for a character or for an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we hear that a lot in this one. Like Vivi's theme is an easy one to point out because he uses that as the sort of basis for the Black Mage Village. Um, and you can also hear a bit of it in a particularly tragic moment that comes within the first couple of hours that I referenced before. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also, just speaking about callbacks to other games, uh, you run into a band of musicians pretty early on um, playing the Shinra March, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> um, and I uh, just want to give a shout out to my personal favorite from the soundtrack, the Village of Dolly theme. I think it's uh, super underrated and super beautiful. Nice. So I'll make sure that that one gets uh, an entry into one of the music breaks here. Uh, There's a, you know, I don't want to come off as sounding like negative about the soundtrack at all. It is really, really nice. It it is something that I could see myself putting on and listening to outside of, you know, playing the game. Uh, And deceptively long soundtrack, if you've ever gone and looked at it, there's hundreds of tracks going on. Um, So nice work, as always, by the godfather Uematsu here. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit of music. We'll get into talking about the combat and the gameplay. Final Fantasy IX is a return to form in a lot of ways, and the combat and the way that your kind of party and characters are built is one of those, I think. So Final Fantasy VIII had a real galaxy brain-ass character build uh, system, the junction system for those um, who've played or heard about it. Final Fantasy IX really just gets back down to basics. So in combat, very standard turn-based combat, Uh, Alejandro, you mentioned before the loading sequences as you go into battles. It's kind of like, I get maybe they can't go back and fix that in a remaster, but when everything else, you know, I played on Switch. I didn't have any trouble with loading screens other than that. Having to spend a few seconds like loading into each battle, and it's always the first battle in every area that's way longer than the subsequent ones. Um, kind of, kind of got on my nerves, but this was a product of, uh, you know, something on a disc from PS one, the, uh, animation speeds are also pretty slow. And I think that they hurt the combat system to a point where I found myself not enjoying it late in the game because animations take a long time to fire off. And this is an ATB combat system. So for those, if you're listening and you're not sure what that means, you have a bar that's filling up over time. And when that bar is full, your character can make a move in combat. You make your move and then you wait for that bar to fill up again. And I am kind of ambivalent on ATB. Don't love it. Don't hate it. There are some games that it was just fine, like Chrono Trigger 
just fine. Final Fantasy VI was okay. But in Final Fantasy IX, and I wonder if you guys felt the same way, I found it hard to like predict when attacks were actually going to fire because the animations are kind of slow. So I'd routinely find myself like hitting cure to, you know, heal up a party member and then 15 to 20 seconds go by cure has still not fired up because other people are doing their attacks. Then the enemy gets to do their attack. That character's dead and cure is now useless. This happened to me often enough to really get on my nerves, especially in boss fights. The Maguri mod does fix a lot of these issues with Ooh. the with with the battle slow slowness. Um, it, it doesn't completely take them all away, but battles are locked to a consistent frame rate. Like they're not nearly as slow. The load times aren't as bad. So that that is one pro to that. And mm-hmm. um, I, I know what you mean about the moves taking a while to fire off. One just one thing to point out is that you know if if you cast cure third in line compared to the rest of your party like if Zidane goes then Freya goes then Aiko goes with Cure yeah. um Aiko is not going to you know go fourth or Aiko is not going to go second she'll always go third um the the caveat is that you can't see the enemy's ATB right, right? that's that's what makes it a little challenging um whereas in 10 everything happens just one at a time which I don't think it's better and I don't think it's worse. I just think it's different true turn-based versus the ATB turn-based. But um, if if you want that certainty of everybody going in a specific order, then, you know, you'll probably like 10 more or, you know, other games like Divinity Original Sin that do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I understand you're not going to like act out of turn or something like that. It's just... I had a really hard time predicting when attacks were actually going to fire, uh, as opposed to like, you know, I just played Chrono Trigger a couple months ago, didn't have that problem in Chrono Trigger. And it's, that's also ATB. So. No, I, I know what you mean. It, it, the game rewards quick thinking and quick input, right? So yeah. if you can, you've got to fire your input off before the enemy can fire theirs. Um, and you just can't see their input. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I totally understand. I'm not, I don't think you're wrong or anything. Yeah, um, it took some time to get used to the combat because, as you said, um, there are times where you can't tell when the next move is actually going to happen until like it's probably too late. Because yeah, uh, when I would try to use Kura to like help out a character in a tight spot, and right before I could, uh, right before it gets uh, performed, that character's already knocked out. So yeah, there's just times where. I was like, okay, the combat system is not, I'm not a big fan of right now, but I understand, like, it's just something that's just taking charge in a weird, weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like, the, the combat was fine for, I would say, again, about two-thirds of the way through the game. I, you know, had a decent time with the combat. The The boss fights were engaging enough. It was all right, and then I, I just, you know, this kind of wore out its welcome. And uh, this game has um, some cheats that helped me get through the game. Um, and so if I was like, you know, this boss fight sucks, I'm having a real hard time with it. I turned on the nine 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 cheats and just got it over with and moved on with the story. Uh, so no, um, I have no shame about doing that. I just want to move on. Um, another thing about the combat uh, that. It's kind of similar to like limit breaks in Final Fantasy VII. 
is you're building up a meter in the game by being hit by enemies called trance. And when trance is full, your character goes into like a super Saiyan state for a few turns and you can do some really, really powerful um, and cool attacks in there. The thing I don't love about trance is they take a long time to build up and they disappear after a few turns. So what I like to do in Final Fantasy VII or in Final Fantasy X with the overdrives is to build those up and take them into a boss battle with full overdrives, etc. And you can't do that in nine because they disappear after a few turns. So these were just more like treats when it got to trance mode. I was like, oh, cool. And often like in a good spot in a boss battle too, if they've been going on for a while, when you hit trance, you're like, okay, sweet. Finally, I can do a really good attack here. But it was never something that I felt like I could count on unless, you know, like I said, late in a boss battle. They disappear after a few turns, but but they also force you into trance as soon as it's ready. So yeah. you don't have the option of just holding off and using an item. Um, that That's my biggest thing with trance is that as soon as it's ready, even if you're on the last turn of a random battle, it's going to be there. And if you don't get to go before the enemy dies, then your trance bar resets. Mm-hmm. That's like the biggest thing for me. That and that the diegetic reasoning behind it is not really strong. It's <laughs> just a surge of emotion, which is fine, but they don't really explore it outside of that, despite using it for plot beats. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a, it's a little weak. But but the the abilities and like the character transformations look pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I kind of agree. Like like just to explore like why um i guess just why the other characters will also like change form as well and like see if it's like anything connected to them but yeah it doesn't help that you can't strategically plan it out when they would like also like go into trance it's more like as soon as as soon as the bar is fully well just filled out it just automatically turns on does not really helpful at times yeah i mean like i said it's it's kind of just like a treat when you hit trance and you're in a boss fight at the right time, it's cool. It's like, a, all right, maybe we can turn the tide here. Um, but it is often, just as often, like Rick said, you're just fighting some random things. Maybe you're out grinding or something like that. And you hit trance, and you're like, I don't really need this. Uh, might not even get to use it. So it's, yeah, okay. A couple other refinements um, from kind of earlier games. Like Rick said earlier, each character is locked into their kind of class. And I really like this. As much as I like Final Fantasy VI, the infinite customization of those characters is more stress-inducing for me than fun and exciting to be able to plan out my characters. I think that's why I like Final Fantasy X as much as I do, because you are following a linear path of progression until way late in the game in that game too. Same here. So you can learn skills for your characters by uh, equipping items and then battling with those items equipped, Uh, similar to Materia, Magisite, things like that. Um, But like I said, I like this more because every character cannot equip every item and every character cannot learn every skill from the items they equip. Sometimes a character might be able to equip an item, but not learn a skill because it's meant for another character. This is fine. I also didn't feel like I needed to grind for these as much as I needed to grind Magisite in Final Fantasy VI. So this is cool. I, I enjoyed this. Nice little uh, 
dopamine hit every time I picked up a new item. And I was like, sweet, new skills for Vivi. Let's go. It's also a little, um, it makes it more interesting because you might pick up a better piece of equipment, but you're not done learning the skills on right. your old ones yet. So it becomes uh, it it becomes a question of do I want the stronger equipment or do I want to tough it out for a couple more battles and learn this skill that could potentially help me? I like mm-hmm. that little wrinkle in it, that little caveat. And you also have like maybe you have equipment that will give you a new skill to learn, but the stats are worse than the thing that you were wearing before. Um, this is. There is kind of a trade-off, especially with some items, some really good like accessories and stuff that you can pick up late in the game to teach you skills, but they have shit stats. So you wouldn't want to be wearing that against a boss. You might need to grind up a little bit. And there is grinding in this game. Um, For levels, I felt like I had to grind for levels in this game and sometimes grinding for, you know, the last few points before I enter a dungeon or something like that to learn a new skill. However... Like I said, I made liberal use of the fast forward and the 9999 cheat. So whenever I was on the overworld, I turned those on to get the grinding done and also deal with, I think there are too many random battles on the overworld. I don't like traversing overworlds in these games because of the random battles. So the cheats really helped me out. Did you guys play a version that had the cheats? And if so, did you use them? Yes, I did, but I decided not to use them because, well, I don't know, I just felt like I was cheating at the time, but honestly, I feel like maybe I should just, like, let myself, like, use them, but then again, there were the ability ups and level up uh, stones, or what do you guys even call those things? Because I'm, I'm not sure if there were crystals or whatever in the abilities thing. Oh, yeah, there are abilities to earn more exp and earn yeah. more ap for your skills yeah yes so i just i just used that instead because i was like oh what's the point like i might as well like try to avoid making it too easy for myself but yeah i just i just went and like just didn't use those sheets overall i i started a playthrough uh before we recorded this episode where i'm using all of the cheats just because i wanted to you know i've played this game so many times like at this point i just want to see the story a little bit the random battles don't really bother me i i've played games that have much worse like persona 2 has way worse like problematically (laughs) worse um and and in general i'm i'm not really that opposed to grinding i'm i don't complain when i don't have to but yeah, it, it's not the end of the world for me. So I, I don't really have a strong opinion on the battles, but I always use the fast forward cheat if I'm like um, backtracking or just exploring in general um, on an overworld, not like in an actual town. But yeah, the overworld, fast forward all the way. Like no issue with that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of mixed on grinding as a concept. I think what it comes down to for me is if the combat is really fun, I don't mind grinding. Like uh, Persona 5, I didn't mind grinding in Mementos because I love the combat in that game. I didn't love the combat in this game. I didn't want to do it over and over to grind. So just when I was on the overworld, I used the cheats. That felt good to me for grinding up to a decent level before going into a new town or dungeon or something like that. So um, the other thing like just kind of bothered me like, This is a remastered version that was ported to the Switch that I played in like 2018 or 2019 or something like that. 
you can still only save on demand on the overworld. And I just kind of wish they would just let you save wherever you want. They have the technology if they wanted to do it, they absolutely could have. And I wish you could. Um, It's kind of, I don't want to say inexcusable. That sounds really harsh, but I really wish they made it so you could just save wherever you want. Right. I mean, maybe when you're like in a town, like it'll be easier to just like, you know, okay, just press this button. You want to like bring Moogle, uh, bring Moogle. Yeah. Bring Moogle or Mog uh, to just like help bring in. I mean, to just uh, come in and just let you save. And it's just very convenient like that. But oh, well, I mean, they probably should have like at least let you do something like that. But I will say it's pretty funny when if you like decide to use the overworld uh, mog or Moogle to like come in and you know save, but ended up not doing anything with them whatsoever. Do it enough times, all of a sudden, um, they, I think they will start saying something crazy like, "Okay, I'm sharpening my knife" because they're getting tired of you just like calling in for nothing. <laughs> Their, their concession with these ports were uh, they added a continue option, which wasn't present in the original PS1. Mm-hmm. So like if you forget to save on the overworld, but you walk into a cave, that is now like if you click continue on your next boot up, that is where you'll spawn. Or if you die and click continue, that's where you'll spawn. Mm-hmm. The I mean, it doesn't auto save every time, but for the most part, every time you enter a new place, it does. Um, but um, I mean... It's 2022. Like, if I don't have save states or the ability to save all the time, like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I could use, you know, the quick, um, quick, uh, sleep, quick resume on the Switch just fine as long as I didn't want to open up another game or something like that. So it was okay for the most part. Just, you know, little QOL I would have liked. Uh, last thing about the gameplay to talk about is Tetra Master, uh, because <laughs> no, Final Fantasy IX podcast would be complete without asking, does anyone in this recording here know how the hell to play Tetra Master, the card game? Somewhat. I mean, we just got <laughs> to... Okay, I can't count the numbers at all, like what the, what the P's or M's stand for. All I know is like the more letters there are, the better. And the more arrows that are uh, you know, pointing all directions, the better. Because especially if you want to like, you know, win a card easily, just have them go up against a card that doesn't have opposing arrows, and there you go. But other than that, I really got no advice on how to really play that game because <laughs> I remember po- uh, sharing a video about it on Twitter, and Eric was like, "You figured out how to play the game?" I was like, "No, I just got lucky." It's there's just a little too much going on. So the, each card is going to have four numbers um, or letters, and they correspond in order with attack power, attack type physical defense and magic defense. But there are these wrinkles like magic is a little stronger. You can have an X instead of physical or magic that kind of trumps both. And then there's just a little bit of RNG to the whole thing. And it just, it it never bothered me because if you are smart about where you're placing things, you're generally going to win. You might not sweep, but you, you could still win, but it's, like I just don't know why they wanted to make it so complicated, needlessly complicated. Yeah, and especially because people love Triple Triad from Final Fantasy VIII. I never got far enough in that game to play it, but I have to just take like the literal unanimous praise for that game. And they turned it into something that is inscrutable. It's weird. It like even you know, like you said, Alejandro. I, I even asked Eric, another Final Fantasy IX super fan. 
like, Hey, do you know how to play? And he's like, no, you just kind of get lucky and win sometimes just, you know, don't, don't try to make bad plays and you'll probably be okay. The only, um, like the saving grace is that you don't have to play this. There's only one time in the game that you have to. And I kind of bumbled my way into enough wins to progress the story, still not knowing what the hell I was doing, but you, you have the option to play cards against like most NPCs in the game. And I cannot imagine going through here and wanting to play this game any more than it's like required to progress it. And they like, evidently they were sick of it too, because for final fantasy 10, they invented an entire sport to be like the kind of mini game in that game. And the topic of whether Blitzball is good is a topic for another podcast, but um, they they ditched cards entirely for the next game. So maybe they were like, yeah, we we got a little galaxy brain here with this one. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I saw in the achievements that there was an achievement for to, uh, to like play or beat 100 opponents and such. I was just thinking, oh. you know, there's going to be that at least one person that decided to do a playthrough where like, Oh, the story? Yeah, that's just like a little a side story. That's nothing really important. The real point of this game is to like become the most ultimate Tetra Master, especially when the end game stuff is like going up against like ancient dead people to like just like play some Tetra uh, uh, rounds. So I was like, wow, like I can imagine <laughs> someone doing that. Oh man, I will say I'd rather play Tetra Master than Blitzball, though. Ooh. Hot take, I think. I mean, I'm no fan of Blitzball anymore either, but I would much rather play Blitzball than this. At least I know what's going on in Blitzball. This is just kind of clicking random places on the, the thing, trying to match up arrows, and even that seemingly works when it wants to, and if it doesn't want to, no idea. It's got good music, though. It does have good music. I mean, Final Fantasy game, gonna have good music. I guess the last thing before getting into final thoughts and spoilers, just a real quick thing there. This game has been involved in lots of remake rumors and whether it's an official remake by Square Enix or the uh, Memoria project, which is a kind of fan remake that has gotten some trailers and stuff and surely going to get a cease and desist at some point. But um, how do we feel about the idea of Final Fantasy IX getting a remake and kind of if it is going to get a, a remake what do we hope from it? Well, I'm not opposed to it. I think it's a game that deserves a remake. Maybe a lot more polished up, of course. But one thing I definitely don't want to happen is for it to be split into three parts. Like, just yeah. just stay true to like the whole, like what the game is about and what the whole plot is about. Like, if you want to make some like at least some tiny bit changes, fine as long as they're not like trying to make it into like oh something new when really it's not gonna lead into anything really thought-provoking like it this game is thought-provoking enough as it is Mm -hmm. um i do think the maguri mod is a happy middle between 
all of this. Um, it it brings enough new stuff to the game that makes it feel incredibly fresh without being an actual overhaul. Um, and I think the Memoria Project, I, th- I think they have outwardly stated that it's just purely for fun. Like it's not, they're not trying to make anything out of okay. it. Okay. I, I mean, if it, it there, there was rumors of this getting a remake because it showed up on like an NVIDIA list with Tactics Ogre Reborn and um, Chrono Cross, but nothing's come of it yet. I, I mean, if they make one, I'm going to play it no matter what. I just, I, I don't think it needs it. It's so funny that they like, they went into Final Fantasy IX specifically trying to go back to their roots away from like seven and eight. But recently, that's exactly what they've gone back to is now everything is proportioned like real people and everybody looks like real people and it's all just very moody and very dramatic and it's all Tetsuya Nomura and it's just <laughs> all so boring and predictable. Like I, this, this is fine as it is. I, it would, nothing would kill me more than if they were to remake six or remake nine in the style of seven remake. Like wh- what a disaster that would be in my opinion. I think that would be bad. I I'm fine with how it is now. Um, or, or, or remaster it and fix things like the battle speed mm-hmm. fix, uh, I mean, to, uh, triple triad if you can, or Tetramaster if you can, <laughs> but if it's, yeah, if it's humanly possible to fix that game to make it playable. Yeah. <laughs> just keep Tetsuya no more away from it. If you do. Yeah. I, I think if it were to be remade, I would definitely play it because my biggest hope would be that they, um, not that they split it up into three parts, but that they do kind of pad out the end and let those things that are introduced back there have some time to develop instead of just being dumped on you. And then you fight the final boss and then the game is over. That would be nice. But yeah, like you guys said, I do not want this to turn into a, a reimagining of the story or whatever the fuck the grand vision for final fantasy seven remake is. I don't want that for this game uh, because I like the way that the story goes in this game a lot more than I like final fantasy sevens story. I don't have like, I don't have a lot of love for, if you can't tell, I don't have a lot of love for final fantasy seven, the original game. So I liked how the remake, you know, gave characters more time to, develop and show their personalities and stuff. But this game already does that final fantasy nine does. So this is, this would not be at the top of my like needs a remake list, but like Rick said, if they do make it, I'll play it. I would be interested to see what they do with the gameplay, how they kind of, maybe they can expand on some stuff in the story, but it's definitely not at the top of the, like this game needs a remake list. Not even, you know, in the final fantasy series, probably wouldn't be near the top of that i i just i i i really reject the idea that games that don't look like kingdom hearts 3 or final fantasy 15 or mm. yakuza 7 like they don't look just because they don't look that way they're not bad like they don't look bad i yeah <laughs> I, I i i don't know when realism became synonymous with quality but i i don't agree with that i don't like that no, I don't like that either. Like we we all said before, we all three of us think this game looks really good, even in the year of our Lord 2022 or 2023 <laughs> when you're listening to this. It's a good looking game. It doesn't need to be remade because of visuals. This isn't, 
you know, the original System Shock or something like that. Looks good. So if they want to remake it and kind of retool some stuff in the story and make the gameplay, you know, a little more engaging for people like me or, you know, what have you, I don't want to be hack and slashing as Zidane and Steiner really though. So I'm not really sure what they do. Cause if they were to remake this, I don't think they would go turn-based because final fantasy has left that behind. So oh, yeah. maybe, maybe it's a cursed idea in the begin in the first place to remake it. Maybe we should just leave it cause it's good. Good how it is. <laughs> yeah. Or else we're going to probably get the remake. And then all of a sudden we got like a five hour uh, sub story about Amaranth's past. It was like, uh, yeah, we don't need that. Like, no, <laughs> we, like nothing like crazy like that. Be yeah. added. Yep. For sure. So let's get into some final thoughts and just real quickly, guys, the question for this section is who would you recommend final fantasy nine to? I, I mean, I personally would really recommend it to anybody that is looking to play a JRPG. I, I think in many, it's not my favorite JRPG. There are things that I like far better in Xenosaga and Persona, but I think as a whole, it, it's it it's really like a perfect JRPG. It doesn't do anything objectively bad. I mean, the battle system is slow, but it's not bad. The, okay, Tetra Master is bad. The, <laughs> the, the ending <laughs> of the plot is not optimal, but it's not bad bad you know it's so i i really think this is a fantastic starting point you know if you play chrono trigger and you say okay i think i like jrpgs this is a great next step um or if you've never played any final fantasy before 13 or before 15 this is a great one to introduce you to the classics uh before six and before four so that's i mean that's my take on it i i I think it's terrific even in 2022 it holds up uh, but play it on PC with the Maguri mod if you can, because it fixes a lot of uh, a lot of two thousands problems. Yeah, I would recommend this to anyone. Honestly, like it definitely could be a great starting point for just like a JRPG fan overall. Before like you dive into like those one hundred hour type hard JRPGs, but uh, it, it's a great it's a great classic. I would recommend it just just to like play it, have fun with it and just enjoy it for what it is. And honestly, you get a really great story out of it. Uh, early fun time overall. And again, it, like Rick is saying, he's saying it because the good points, it's, it doesn't do anything objectively bad. It's, um, you just can't go wrong with it. Honestly, uh, other than just, again, the little minor stuff, like, Oh, like low times being slow or like, doesn't have like the quality of life things like, being able to save everywhere you would like to save, you would have a great time with it. And I think you're just like doing yourself a disservice of missing out on this uh, nice, cool story to experience. Yeah, I think think I'm going to land on like, similar to what you guys said, if someone wants to play their first Final Fantasy game, I think this is a good one to start with because it is kind of a, like we said before, a love letter to everything that the series had done up until this point. Also good for people like Rick said, I was also going to say this, like if you have played Final Fantasy 15, Final Fantasy 7 Remake, Final Fantasy 10, recent Final Fantasy games, 
and you want to go into the past of the series, this is a good place to start too. Yeah, really good story. And I have a hard time thinking of someone who like I definitely wouldn't recommend this to. And it's really just, if you hate JRPGs, thank you for listening to this episode, but this game's not for you. It's a JRPG-ass JRPG. But for everybody else, if you can stomach a JRPG or maybe even enjoy one, I think this is a a pretty good recommendation. And I'm really happy that I enjoyed this game a lot more the second time that I played it because uh, I, I did feel bad about hating it as much as I did the first time. I was just not in the right headspace, apparently. Uh, so I'm glad I had a lot uh, better time with it this time around and can pretty wholeheartedly recommend it to a whole lot of people. So a uh, little housekeeping before spoiler time here, other than checking down in the show notes, for links to your podcasts, guys. Um, is there any kind of specific episode or anything else that you're doing out in podcast land that uh, you think people should check out? Uh, by the time this recording comes out, you can probably hear Pixel Project Radio's uh, at least our first episodes on Final Fantasy VI. So that'll be fun. Um, Final Fantasy VI and Near Replicant are the upcoming big JRPGs that are on the horizon. Um, some other stuff coming too, but that's probably when those are probably the episodes that you'll hear around the time this releases. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to both of those. Uh, one of them because I'm going to be on it and the other one because uh, I love Final Fantasy VI. So I can't wait to hear what you guys think about that game. Um, so uh, Alejandro, how about you? Uh, nothing in the near future for now, unfortunately, but uh, episode 49, you want to like, catch up on the whole Bayonetta 3 and stuff like that happened. That was a weird time. Very, very weird time. Then, yeah, have fun. Like, just me actually trying to go through all that step by step of what was going on. But episode 48, that was when I was doing a different kind of thing where I was actually trying to be much more serious about presenting a game idea to my friends and pretty much the audience overall of a Fallout game that was more uh, turn based. And just like just trying to borrow some ideas from like maybe a bit of Monster Hunter, but also like having the story be uh, turning out turning out a bit different as well, to the point where my friends actually liked it. So I was, that that was pretty cool, and I guess that says this this episode's not a complete waste of your time. <laughs> but um, <laughs> overall, honestly, I, I I want to say something new, like for something new to look forward to, but. For the time being, the podcast is in limbo. I really hope I shoot. I might as well just like skip straight to season three just to start releasing new stuff because I, goddamn, I just miss it. Mm-hmm. Well, both uh, Random Gamers Corner and Pixel Project Radio um, are podcasts that I've listened to and enjoyed, and I think you will too, listener. So as I'm doing my plugs for Tales from the Backlog, go down in the show notes, click those links. Find an episode that interests you. I guarantee you there'll be something good there for you. So for Tales from the Backlog, uh, what you can do to support is if you're enjoying the show or if you just feel like it, um, regardless of your enjoyment of the show, consider leaving a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, Consider joining the Discord server where you can chat with cool people such as Rick and Alejandro about video games. Um, We have a great group of people in there and we would love to have you. Um, If you are so inclined to support on Patreon, that would be very great. Helps keep the show uh, running and uh, helps pay for games. Games are expensive, folks. 
And my other podcast is called a top three podcast, where each episode we do a top three list. And they're not about video games most of the time. So if you like the sound of my voice, you like my opinions and everything else about me, and you want to hear more of that, but not about video games, a top three podcast. We are going to take a break. When we come back, it's time for spoilers for Final Fantasy IX. I am back with Rick and Alejandro talking about spoilers for Final Fantasy IX. What we've done is we are going to break the game into a couple of sections. And rather than go beat by beat through the plot, because uh, this is a JRPG, a lot of plot. Um, I just want to kind of get our favorite character arcs and stuff like that. Especially from this first main section where you're dealing with the, the plot with the Black Mages and Queen Braun and the Rise of Kuja and uh, everything that's happening in that part. So we talked about Vivi before, um, but I really think Vivi's arc and like the story of the Black Mages is really, really interesting. And you keep getting kind of revelations through the plot that take it to a deeper level. Um, So first, you know, Vivi sees that the Black Mages are these manufactured weapons of war. That's a pretty early, like, Oh, where's this going? You know, when you see the factory where they're being made and dealing with all of that, but then you get all of those times where Vivi's being harassed for being a black mage. Um, and then you find the village and you find out that they only live for one year. And Rick, I assume you've seen this too, but Alejandro, did you find the place where Vivi was created and Vivi's kind of father for lack of a better term? Uh, I know that the scene looked familiar when he had like a little flashback. I was like, oh, I've been here before, but I don't know what was going on. Like, I guess like I was like trying to catch up with everything, like well, the plot. So not as clearly, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like a moment where I kind of thought in my head as this was going on, I had this kind of nagging thought that like, all these other black mages are being manufactured. They have a one year lifespan, et cetera, et cetera, but not Vivi. Vivi's different somehow. And then you do get that flashback. Uh, I forget the person's name. Um, it's the same species as Kina, uh, who created Quan. Rick. Quan. Quan. Yeah, Quan. Uh, you find Quan's lair and then you get a flashback of Vivi being in there. Quan was raising Vivi to eat him at some point. Yeah, that was uh, that was why he kind of adopted Vivi at first was yeah. because he was going to eat him. Yep. <laughs> very. <laughs> I mean, very on brand for that species. Do you know what they're called? Or do they have like a species name? Yeah, they're, um, I don't know how it's pronounced. They're Q-U. I just call them the Ku. The Ku. Okay. So them... And how their whole purpose in life is to just eat as much as possible, eat all the tasty food, etc. Uh, Vivi, that was part of the plan for Vivi. But you realize at some point that Vivi's lifespan is not natural. It's a one-year um, lifespan as well. And 
that kind of like made me think about Vivi differently as the story went on because Vivi had to be thinking about this as well. Well, Vivi's got a little bit of plot armor, right? So that's why they they say whenever you first find out about the more or less one year bit, they specify that the prototype lives longer or that's what they know. Right. That's what they say. But still not, you know, not a natural indefinite lifespan, not indefinite, but you know what I mean? Right. No. Yeah, of course. Um, And it's cool because we not only do we get to see the quote unquote birth of these black mages where they finally like gain consciousness. um, But we, we get to see Vivi struggle, who is again, can't specify this enough. He's like an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. Um, sort of coming to terms with what it means to stop, which is what they call it at first, because that's they don't have a word for die. Um, they stop. And you, you get to see Vivi sort of wrestling with that. Like, what does this mean? What does my like am I gonna stop? When am I gonna stop? What do I I don't wanna st- I think like there are a couple of points where he just outright says, like, I'm scared. Like, I don't want <laughs> I don't wanna die. And it's, it's, it's done so well because it's, it starts off really in, in plain language, like, like an eight year old boy would be using. And it, it, it gets expounded upon as, as time goes. And it, it's one of the better arcs in the game for sure. I, I, and that's what most people will agree on too. I, I tend to like Steiner's just a little bit more, but Vivi is, I mean, he's so clearly the breakout star in mm-hmm. this game. Definitely agree. Okay, it's funny because I was looking again, TV Trump's idiom, so I was just trying to look up as much as I could. And it's funny because I was just thinking, like, how is it that he's six years old while, you know, just having that one year time, time span thing going on? But then, like, apparently he's to- supposedly supposed to be like the youngest um, Fire, I mean, Final Fantasy character ever because he's like actually six months old. And I'm just like, wait, what? When does. I was just thinking to myself, like, when does the six months part come in? I was like, did I miss it? Was I just not focusing? And I was just uh, thinking back. I was like, okay, if he were like a couple of months have passed and he passed away, then maybe it sort of makes sense because then that means he only had six months left by the time, like, uh, after what happened with uh, Zidane. So I'm just thinking, okay, maybe he actually was like six months old at the time. But then I was just thinking, what's up with the six year old part? But. I, I think it's like dog years, except it's <laughs> VV years. You know, he's like, he's like six or eight VV years, but no, you're, you're right. Canonically, he's like the youngest because he was made only a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And yeah. I got to say, just honestly, the way they tackled death was just so interesting to just like see unfold. And I have to say like the way they tried to explain the cemetery um, at the at the maid, uh, the black mages, uh, village was like, so beautiful. Like just like how they were trying to explain what I say, I had to look it up just to see like how they explain, like how, um, why to like visit a friend who is buried and such. But it was like, cool. Just to see how all these other characters like VV are trying to tackle death itself. Like something that they're like barely realizing. It's really sad in that moment when Vivi first learns about it because they're standing at the cemetery and one of the other mages says like, Oh, Mr. 234 is buried here. When he wakes up, I'm going to wash him off in the river. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, it's kind of funny at first. And then Vivi like talks to the other one who's there, who is a little more uh, aware. 
And he's like, well, you, I, you know what it means to live and what it means to die. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's really well done. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I found it the, when he was, uh, Mr. 288 explaining what a cemetery was for to Makoto. You're right. But I don't think we build cemeteries for the dead. Sure. It may seem pointless to you, but how can I describe it? It's so that we can think like this. We'll never forget you or remember you every time we stand at your grave. And we won't let the fear of death, which each of us knows, stop us from living our lives because my friends will remember me when I'm here. Yeah. For a game that is like pretty, like I've said before, kind of cartoonish and theatrical, it does hit some really kind of deep conversations when you know, you're talking about this plot with Vivi and the Black Mages. And Vivi's kind of a constant source of this uh, because not only does Vivi learn that the Black Mages have finite lifespans and everything like that, but you also get to a point where you, at one point, I think you defeat the Mist. Yeah, you defeat um, Kuja and the Mist dissipates, which means there are not going to be any more Black Mages. And that's a thing that Vivi has to deal with too, as maybe he is uh, going to live longer than the rest of the black mages. He is dealing with maybe being the last of his kind, or at the very least seeing kind of the end of his kind as there's not going to be any more because without mist, there are no black mages in this game. And then we got BB babies. I was like, what (laughs) at the end? Yeah. I want to know where those came from, but I also don't want to know where they came from. They're they're there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, you know what? Let it be mysterious. Like, I, I don't think I need a, a more background for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple other characters. I talked a little bit about Garnet um, in the beginning, kind of praised her character, but I really like the, her story is a bit more like traditional, I guess. You know, she's coming to terms with how evil her mom is, um, going through the stages of like, no, I can talk her out of this. And then realizing it's no use. Um, and then after Braun dies, Garnet kind of feels like she needs to take up the responsibility for the kingdom. And this all sounds very like stereotypical as I'm just saying it like that. But the moment to moment, all the conversations that she has with Zidane and with Steiner, um, I came to really, really like her character arc as well, her story. One thing that kind of deviates it from that traditional sort of character archetype is we learn somewhat late into the game maybe about a halfway 60 percent of the way through that um garnet is not actually the queen's daughter right Um, the real princess garnet died and this girl who we learn garnet's real name is sarah at some point it's it's a sort of hidden scene but we we learn that she escaped her home village of medin sari as it was being destroyed and just happened to wash up in alexandria and she she looked exactly like Princess Garnett, who passed away. So they just adopted her. Um, so we there there's somebody's I think it's Zidane at some point, like just has a little comment that Garnett's lost two mothers at this point. Like she lost her actual mom who died, mm-hmm. and she lost Queen Braun to greed and lust and power, and then later actually losing her, um, which makes it all the more poignant and and heavy when. You know, no, everybody is, is like, you know, we, we hate Queen Braun, like let her just let her get got by Kuja. And she's like, you know, she's my, <laughs> she's my mom. Like, I, I can't, 
I can't just let her die. Like yeah. I, as awful as she, and as awful and as horrible as she is, like we've got to save her. And that's that's they don't really dwell on that too much, but that's that's a heavy thing that real people go through. I think in real life, yeah, maybe not to the extent that your mom is trying to destroy the world or you know kill a bunch of people in neighboring kingdoms or whatever. But there, we all have someone in our life, right? Where you're like, man, I really don't agree with what this person is doing or saying, but you know, they are my family. I have some, you know, degree of love for them. I can't just let bad things happen to them, uh, which is what she's going through. Another character that I really, really um, came to like this time is Steiner. And um, Steiner, like I said before, Steiner starts out as just the most unlikable character, in my opinion. Theatrical and funny in a way, but he is just constantly acting against the party's best interests And then that slow turn and like, if you pay attention and really, if you have like the whole thing in mind while you're reading the conversations, you can pinpoint points where it starts to turn, where Steiner starts to question his like doggish loyalty to Queen Braun and, um, you know, his like number one pursuit of protecting the kingdom of Alexandria. And I, I just really came to appreciate it. Uh, all the way, this build up, all the way until uh, Steiner's kind of last stand um, while Alexandria is under attack. And I also like what they did with Beatrix too. Beatrix has like a little mini version of this too, where Beatrix is, you know, the you know the the sword arm of the queen, basically going out and killing who needs to be killed or destroying what needs to be destroyed. And then she sees the error in that too, and together. Beatrix and Steiner have this really great final stand where they realize like where their duty actually lies. And I just really enjoyed that storyline. Like Rick, I don't think that you're off base at all by saying that Steiner is um, a character arc that stands up to Vivi's as being impressive and memorable. It's really good. You know, he goes from saying that Zidane's going to be hung (laughs) for uh, trying to kidnap the princess to eventually telling Baku that he could learn manners from Zidane. Yeah. Zidane. So, and I agree that the, the last stand with uh, Steiner and Beatrix is maybe one, it's top three moments in the game for me easily. Yeah. Steiner really grew on me like real fast when he started like making more realizations and was getting, was pretty much like questioning like what he stand, uh, stood for when people like kept pointing out like, Oh, you said, you think of it this way, but what about this other way? Or like, you barely know more. Uh, you barely know that much about how the world works right now. And yeah, it was just this cool. Like he, him having to realize, like, okay, does he stand for the queen, for the people, or does he uh, stand for the princess? And it was just cool. Just cool from the uh, like him, like being very loyal and uh, focusing on duty doesn't mean he has to compromise his morals as well. Like he, he was such a cool character to like watch grow as well. Yeah. hundred percent. I like his, um, I, I like his little touch. He looks like he's wearing like eye makeup, like eyeliner in the, um, the, especially the full motion or the, uh, the rendered cutscenes. I just love how expressive Steiner is in all of those cutscenes. He, he's such a, yeah. 
just an animated character. Really enjoyed those. Uh, gives a lot of personality. Kind of, I guess, just talking about the other side characters. Um, Kina is, I think Kina is like a comic relief character. Kina is fine. Um, if Kina were less useful in battle, I would have been like, okay, like you can sit on the bench and just pop up when you have a story moment or something. Um, did you guys kind of feel the same way about Kina or you into the, uh, the comic relief character? I, I mean, Quinn is fine. I don't really have a strong opinion about them one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they, they, they can be really useful in battle. I mean, it's really easy to break blue magic if you take the time to learn it, especially because you can learn powerful spells pretty early on with Quinna. Um, but it's, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I, I don't really, you know, they're, they're fine. Interesting. Fine. Um, with uh, Kina's pronouns in the game. It's definitely the earliest version of a game that I can remember using not quite non-binary pronouns. They they do like S slash he. So it's like he, she uh, pronouns in the game as they're saying kind of ambiguity there. Very close to being um, progressive in a way, I think. But kind of interesting that they were like, yeah, no one knows what Kina is doesn't matter. Yeah, I thought it was like, wow, this game is very progressive. <laughs> like, first time, like, uh, later on when Zidane gets brought up, I'll bring up another point of what I meant by that. But yeah, with Kina, like, having the she, he pronouns, I was like, oh, wow, look at that. But then I was like, well, maybe they just don't, they can't figure it out. But still, it's pretty cool overall. But yeah, Kina is just like, a static character that I'm very okay with. Like they're just there to be funny and maybe accidentally be helpful at times in a different mm-hmm. way. Like just like very simple my way of just being helpful. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's funny. You, you said like, Oh, kind of progressive. And the only thing that I could think of is when Zidane grabs Garnett's ass and it's just like, Ooh, soft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which like, I don't like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I don't like, I don't think that scene is, it, that scene doesn't offend me, but like, yeah, that, that's yeah. the first thing that comes to mind every time. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you know, with the way that, um, I played a couple of games covered on the show in 2022 that have very prominent non-binary, uh, characters, final fantasy nine almost did it. If they had just thought of the word, they, yeah i don't that's the thing i don't i think you know 1999 they probably weren't i mean non-binary in japan in 1999 it's not a point of criticism it's just kind of like a a thing that popped into my head as i was playing um Mm -hmm. after playing things like citizen sleeper where this is on the forefront i do wonder like i i don't know what it says in the japanese script like i i wonder why they went with s slash he Instead of just saying they, yeah, you know, kind of, it's not exactly a new concept to refer to somebody as they, yeah, yep, um, yeah. Other characters, um, how do you guys feel about Freya and Aiko? Rick has said this. Freya really could have like got some more shine, um, but I think I'm pretty sure he's about to say it right now. Go, I'll go off Rick because I know <laughs> that. <laughs> I know you got plenty to say about her. No, no, I mean that's really all I have to say. You took it right out of my mouth. I, they just, I don't think they utilized Freya very well. I think she's an awesome character, and I just wish they would have done more with with her. Um, Aiko too. Like I, I think Aiko's great. I, you know, she's an obnoxious little brat, and I think that's very <laughs> funny and cool. Um, also, I, 
always prefer to use her over Garnett uh, just because I think, I mean, she is the white mage, whereas Garnett's the summoner Hmm. and, you know, Aiko has enough summons that it works out. Plus she's got better uh, white magic and has the holy attack, which is really, really good. So, yeah, Freya's pretty cool, but halfway through, like she kind of fell off because it, it's just those damn traps of, okay, characters haven't been leveled up in a while because we're barely revisiting them. And I was just thinking, uh, I'm sorry, Freya, but I really don't have time to like keep trying to grind you up when they already got other characters to grind up as well. And then, but yeah, after the whole realizing her lo- her lost love uh, doesn't remember her anymore, I was thinking, I was thinking damn, well, they really can't go anywhere else with her character other than that for like the rest of the story, which disappointed me. Yeah. And then for Aiko, yeah, she's a, she's a really funny character overall. Like, um, just like there's times where she just like says whatever's on her mind. That's pretty funny to me. And, but I still found it pretty interesting where she does at least know a lot more about the history of all the summoners and such. And could have shared more regarding it. If she wasn't so focused on, you know, girl talk about Zidane. Yeah. That was the thing with Aiko that I like, I, I just, you know, she's, it is kind of funny how she's a little kid and she says whatever the hell's on her mind at the time. I just like instantly when most of her dialogue was her talking about having a crush on Zidane, I was just like, eh, you know, I can, can really, we can do something else with her character. I wasn't a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. At least she it, helps. It didn't bother. Oh, go on. Sorry. Um, it, it, it didn't bother me. I mean, She's a little girl and little girls get crushes on, you know, cool older guys, older being like, you know, 14 or 16, depending on how old the kid is. I mean, it, it happens. I, I what I like more is that, you know, she lost her entire tribe and her entire family. So she's profoundly lonely, which is why she acts so boisterous and obnoxious and in some ways clingy to everybody, not just Zidane, but to everybody around her. Mm-hmm. I think that makes that that's an interesting character point. Yeah. Raised by Moogles. <laughs> oh yeah. That that's actually a good point. I forgot about that. Like it is probably like a way of coping before real um realizing her own emotions. So like, oh, she just wants to be with friends. It's not like about like, oh, just having this just crazy boy crush on Zidane and in a way, I think they kind of like needed some kind of way to just help Zidane realize, like, oh, so this is how it feels like to like have someone like flirt with you or try to be like a bit obsessed with you. And I'm like, okay, that's some cool character growth right there. I think uh, Aiko's like purpose in the story, aside from her story with the Summoner tribe and stuff like that, is Zidane and Garnet have this romance brewing between the two of them, but in classic storytelling trope fashion neither of them will say anything to the other person about it so Aiko is kind of there to like talk to both of them individually about that and they still don't like say to Aiko they don't say yeah I love Garnet or something like that but she's there having those conversations with each of those two characters because Zidane and Garnet will not do it until the very end of the game although it's like abundantly clear that Zidane at least has a crush on Garnet from the beginning because that's all he can think about is her and that's how he acts and what his motivations for doing a lot of things in the story is to keep her safe or just be near her but neither of them will say that to each other 
Yeah. Um, I think it was just cool, like, for Zidane to, like, yeah, he, he was just, like, having a crush on Garner. Because, like, at first, like, he was just hitting on her just because, like, she was showing really great acrobatic skills, like, on getting away from him before, like, saying, like, oh, you know what? I'd rather just have you kidnap me. But it was just, like, more like he was just trying to be suave and trying to just, like, hopefully hit, uh, get a date with her and such. He was, like, being relentless about it, though, before, like, <laughs> getting some character growth and then realizing, oh, shit. I'm in love with this girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do any of you have kind of like any moments from this first like grand arc of the the story that stood out to you in a really impressive way? Like I wrote down here that the um, the cursed forest at the beginning felt like a very fantasy fairy tale type uh, situation where you go in, you fight the, um, you know, the the evil spirits inside uh, the the plant monster that captures uh, Garnet at the beginning. You have that cool escape where Blank gets petrified. I thought that was a really cool, like like the the opening to the game with the kidnapping and everything is really great. But then this next section I thought was also really cool too. Yeah, Cursed Forest is really really good. Um, that that's a very cool sequence as they're running out and everything is just kind of being petrified behind them. Um. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I don't think anything all the way up through that to the sort of end portion of the game really bugged me. I don't like Gargan Rue very much, but I liked the music a lot, so it wasn't quite so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's kind of the biggest thing that I can think of. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, there, there have been like. Some folks have said like, oh, you go to a village of talking dwarfs for and spend two hours there, which is a reductive take completely. But I, I don't have an issue with really anywhere, really. I mean, it's all I, it's all mostly tied to the plot. Um, again, Gargan Rue, I, I don't like very much. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have any strong criticisms or anything like that. Mm hmm. Not from this kind of first portion of the game for me either. I was pretty in for everything that's going on up until the point where Bronn dies, for sure. Alejandro, how about you? Was there anything that stood out to you? No, yeah, the forest, it was a big thing. I was just thinking like, whoa, this is going to get it just uh, turned into something bigger, which it did. Or like, you know, big, crazy monster, like living under in the roots of the, how do you pronounce it? The Ifa tree? Ifa tree? And this is like, realizing that this is just like a small part and like okay uh, they're just the fight against not like the fight against evil but like just fighting against kuja i was like okay well we just had this crazy monster like living here for a while like oh there's been some big integral thing to making these beings so i'm just thinking what else could we call uh could possibly be going on with this world for a tree like this to be able to give life yeah that's just a crazy arc in general just overall and then of course you know, the destruction of the first continent, the first city or whatever. And I was just thinking like, what the heck? Like, how how did this happen? And I was like, I know like there's always going to be like a terrible event to happen in Final Fantasy, but it's always like something crazy to see. Mm-hmm. I like that we get to go back there and explore the various places after they've been destroyed. With the exception of Burmesia, because it gets like completely obliterated. But we get to go back to Alexandria, and I think Lindblom after it comes under attack. Yeah, yeah, you definitely go back to Lindblom for sure. 
Yeah. Uh, I think that that, that section where, um, kind of, kind of at the end of this arc, right. Where you have like the, the fight with Kuja, um, at the tree. And then you have that sequence where I, I may be mixing these up, but, um, Bron calls down Bahamut, but then the giant eye opens up in the sky and kind of commandeers Bahamut and turns it on, Braun, you have the attack on Alexandria happening at the same time, Steiner and Beatrix's last stand. I thought that that was all like a really strong part of the game. And if I had my wish, this might be like the beginning of the end of the game, but we'll get into that um, in a second. But kind of rewind a little bit. So we, as we go through, we start out with Braun as like the clear villain in the game, and then it becomes clear in classic JRPG fashion, that Braun is not the actual villain, that Kuja has been kind of manipulating and controlling her. Kuja's the villain. And then we find out later that Kuja is not the real villain either. This is a, you know, JRPG thing that keeps happening. But Kuja's the villain for like most of the second half of the game. So how do we feel about Kuja as a villain? Compelling, interesting backstory, anything like that? I mean, I, Kuja's fine. I, I don't like him as much as Kefka. Um, I mean, once you sort of learn that Kuja's whole deal is that he went rogue because, uh, he valued his individuality a little too much. I, I think it, it's a bit compelling. That's the only, that's one of the only things that we would lose if we were to cap the game by fighting Kuja after the uh, Bahamut Alexander attack mm-hmm. is we would lose Kuja's motivation and backstory. We would lose Zidane's motivation and backstory um, and then some world building stuff. I, I think it might be fine. I, I think it would be a little unsatisfying to be honest, to end it there. But Kuja, I, I, I don't know. It, it kind of feels like they're trying to make another Kefka, but not, it, it just doesn't work quite as well. Or another Sephiroth like he, or something. Well, um, I mean more Kefka because he speaks with such flowery, dramatic language. Like he's more dramatic than Sephiroth. Um, and you know, he, I don't think he tries to be badass. I mean, he, he looks sexier than most of the women in the game to be frank yeah geez louise um <laughs> but but yeah i don't know he he just kind of felt like another attempt at like a kefka like and yeah you know yeah just eh. it's funny because i don't know kefka so for for the time being i don't know like the superior version of of kuja so all i, all I can say is that it was an interesting character just for just for how, in a weird way, he's like a pitiable character. I guess that's a word. Yeah, pitiable character of being this well person that's just created out of like this person created to be this destroyer of the world, like angel of death, and realized that okay, there's gonna be many more like me, and I'm not like that. Uh, I'm not that special, and I guess they just. Oh, it got overblown to the point where now he's doing everything he can to like, well, make himself like be an individual. Like, it, it probably makes sense, like why he speaks the way he does, the way he dresses as well to like stand out more. And I just felt like, okay, that's a pretty interesting character. But like to say anything else, like I guess like some, uh, someone very thought provoking, then not so much. Just someone that's like pitiable yet 
could be interesting. But I do give props for actually being a villain that actually destroys the whole damn world. Another callback to, well, I won't tell you which game, Alejandro, because I don't want to spoil it for you, but an earlier right. Final Fantasy <laughs> game where the villain wins partway through the game. So I don't really like Kuja. And Rick, you're right. They do introduce some like compelling backstory and motivation for Kuja, but it's way too late in the game. You've already spent like 15 hours at least of Kuja just kind of like talking about how he wants to be powerful because the powerful eat the weak, etc. Really basic, not compelling stuff, um, at least for me personally. So like I went through most of this game just being like, you know, what is what is Kuja's deal? Why is obviously super powerful able to control the Eidolons and stuff like that? But I I never once found Kuja compelling. Um, and then when they do introduce that stuff late in the game, I was like, okay, well, I'm so far into like not caring about Kuja territory that when they got there, I was like, all right, that's, you know, kind of cool, but I, I'm not in. It's it's not enough to pull me all the way back on Kuja. It's it's fair, and you know, I I really think it's just a pacing issue. Like I, the more I think about it, I just think the ending of this game is paced poorly compared to the first two thirds, which are paced extraordinarily well. Yeah, I and I'm I'm with you. Like I I don't really. I, it's not that I don't care about Kuja. It's just that. He's just a means to an end. Yeah. So what we've been referring to is me. I've, I've talked about this with Rick before, talked about it in the discord server. And, um, I have it in the doc here that I wanted this game to be over at this point where you have the, the attack on Alexandria, you have the Eidolons, um, attacking Steiner and Beatrix's last stand. You go fight Kuja you're going to go chase Kuja down and fight him. And I wanted the game to be over then. I thought that would have been a natural conclusion. Um, I thought Steiner's story, Garnet's story, Vivi's story were all wrapped up in a satisfying way. And we start to get after this, we start to get into Zidane's backstory. But I just, I never played through the first section of this game wondering about Zidane. Never. I never was like, I wonder what his deal is. He's just a, he's just a guy. And so when we started to get into Zidane's backstory and like this higher scope, higher level scope of like what's actually going on, I was just like not in for that. I found the, the local story on Gaia really, really cool. And then when they started introducing the stuff with Terra and Garland and stuff like that, I was like, I don't want this. This is not... This isn't what I want. And there are some cool <laughs> moments uh, from here on out, but I really like, I would have been cool with the game ending right here. I, I don't think that knowing what would have been missed, I don't think that I would have personally missed it had it not been there. If that made sense, everything was resolved in my head. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> right. Like the more we talk about, it, the more I feel like it could have been extra game. Like once we got into like the whole different world stuff, I was like, I feel like I'm entering a different game that I'm not invested in because it's like a bit too new. Like now, like with Dane, I was just thinking, okay, so he's a simple dude that happens to like have to be an orphan, was taken in and 
Remember, like, lived his life as a thief and also, like, I guess, like a bit performer as well. And just um, happened to be this one dude that happened to be the right place, right time to be, well, I guess, a weird way to put it, but to kidnap a princess. And now gets to go on this adventure with her. But then turns out he was secretly made to be an angel of death as well. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. But I guess there's still a part of me that still enjoyed that very much when it still gave us, uh, you're not alone. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. The, you get inklings of Zidane's backstory throughout, like think like thinking about when he tells Garnett that uh, bedtime story that is just his childhood story. Um, wondering where he's come from, what his family is like. And then of course, uh, Kuja's motivations too. Um, and then we also learn like, Oh, that's what the Aoife tree is doing. That's where the mist comes from. So all of that wouldn't be answered without the end. But at the same time, there's probably a way they could have, I, I still think it would have, wouldn't be as good of a story ending here, but they could have made it work if they would have retconned some of that stuff previously you know what i mean yeah this is a purely like dave's experience opinion here this isn't like a you know i didn't go through all of the questions that would have been left unanswered had they ended the game here it like stuff like that i didn't go through all that this is just a purely like my experience was winding down here and i was ready for the game to be over and then it kept going so all the stuff that came after that with Tara and Garland, et cetera, started to really make me get those feelings of like every JRPG I've played that has too, too many villains at the end, or like a final, final, final boss at the end that is unnecessary. I think this game hits all that stuff too. <laughs> Speaking of that, I mean, I, I know you've got some more notes here, but I mean, are you, are you ready to talk Necron? Yeah, let's talk Necron, let's talk Terra, let's talk that storyline and um, kind of go through those because there's some cool stuff going on and there are, specifically with Zidane's story, there's something that just felt lacking with Zidane's backstory here. And you mentioned it before too when you talked about the pacing of this last section. So let's get into that. trying to make your way to Terra you throughout this quest for Kuja where Kuja kidnaps everybody and um, Zidane has to go get a MacGuffin for him you learn about the homeworld of Terra that Kuja and Zidane uh, come from also during this section you have that uh, cute escape or that cute stealth sequence as Sid uh, when Sid's the frog and you're trying to get the key it's infuriating to play but it's so cute I don't know how mad I can actually be at it it's very cute Shout out to Final Fantasy IX's version of Sid. Yeah, yeah. I I playing that on Switch with the input delay on like the docked TV uh, was infuriating, but 
not fun, but he's a super cute frog with super exaggerated, like run, 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 freeze animations. So cute. Um, so at this point I wrote down here that I had, I am out on the story, like the story of Tara. They're trying to explain to me this, this home world and this, you know, this origin of some of these other characters like Garland and Kuja. I don't care about this at this point in my playthrough. And they kind of reeled me back in a little bit at the end, but I am like just in my experience here checked out. Uh, I know Rick, you're not because you've said so before, but Alejandro, were you in on this stuff too? I was fine with everything that was going on, but at the same time, it was just like, well, just like last man stuff thrown in. It was just like the pacing was just starting to get a bit jumbled up with how, okay, you got to learn this new thing. You're going to learn this new thing. Oh, okay. We got to come back to revisit this kind of thing. Like you remember this plot. Okay. We're revisiting that as well. So it was like, uh, I, I was okay with it, but I wasn't a big fan of it. Hmm. So Rick, is my assumption right then? Like, um, are you, to what extent are you in on this plot? Like, do you like what's going on, even though it might be kind of poor pacing here? I mean, it's not as memorable. I wouldn't say, I think checked out might be a bit too strong for how I was feeling, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's, it, it didn't have the same grasp on me as the entire first portion of the game did. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So here we learn about Zidane's backstory and also Kuja's backstory here. Um, so they are both kind of these, I forget what the exact terminology is, but they, the people on Terra are kind of empty vessels and there is a purpose to kind of repurpose the souls from Gaia into these empty vessels. If I understand that correctly. And, uh, Kuja and Zidane are kind of like the ultimate versions of these. If that's right, they are given their own kind of, agency whereas the other vessels are not yeah the tldr is that uh their homeworld terra needed to be absorbed into another planet gaia because it needed a new core um the genomes were created to absorb the souls of the people of terra which are just kind of in limbo and kuja was supposed to be the original uh person kind of fostering this uh destruction of gaia kuja got too powerful so uh, Garland created Zidane to sort of replace him. Crazy failsafe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Zidane gets too powerful, they create another one. No. Um, so this kind of story is interesting. Um, it's interesting to find out that not only are uh, Zidane and Kuja, you know, we're not so different, you and I, um, but that Kuja's part of Kuja's motivation is that he was um, his replacement was basically created. And then that's kind of why he goes rogue a little bit um, and tries to get back at Garland um, at some point throughout the story. But Zidane's backstory was, like I said before, I wasn't going through the game wondering where Zidane came from. I think this is pretty interesting on its own, but it really didn't hit me very hard um, because I felt like we had been through this same story with Vivi before, except Vivi's story had 25 hours to breathe and, you know, go through all different, you know, forms of, um, you know, Vivi's progression along that. Zidane doesn't get that. Zidane gets a couple of conversations and then there are a couple of moments with Zidane, but I just like it, I guess it really does come down to pacing now that we're talking about it. 
this could have been a lot cooler had it more had it had several more hours to develop. And if we were set up to care about Zidane's past at all. Yeah. I mean, we're so focused the entire game on Vivian Garnett. Yeah. That we don't really, and, and Zidane is too, like that's what he's focused on. He doesn't talk about his past unless Garnett specifically asks him. Yeah. Um, it does tie into this overall theme of like life and death. And I think that's interesting. I just, whether it's pacing or just writing, it, it just doesn't, work like i think they wanted it to yeah right i had down like a a theme of identity being explored through the game specifically through vivi um and steiner too and garnet uh two lesser degrees and then zidane gets his turn here but zidane just doesn't have enough time to go through it zidane goes through like an identity crisis in the span of like an hour and then you're fighting the final boss like in game for an hour, like that whole, you are not alone sequence is like maybe six minutes. Yeah. It's very, like, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it's bad, but everybody talks about how moving it is. And it's like, I, I didn't think so. Like he gets sad. They say, Hey, we're your friends. And he says, go away. And then they say, no, really, we're your friends. And then he says, Oh gee. <laughs> and that's it. Like I, this, it felt so flat for me, like really flat. Interesting. Music's good though. I kind of say it's pretty ironic how we kind of like learned his stuff last minute because he put his stuff aside. And then here we are with now an actual game. We're learning about his stuff like last minute. And like that's because like he doesn't want to like settle with his thing. He only wants to focus on others. So it's kind of like, huh, gameplay and story integration put together ironically enough, but not in a good way. That was the thing that like, I agree with what you said, Rick. Um, it's just the, the moments kind of fumbled a little bit, but the thing that does, that did give me a little bit of, uh, awe is the fact that throughout the entire game, Zidane is so supportive of everybody else. And he's such a solid uh, teammate for everybody. And then in his moment where he's going through a crisis, everyone else comes up to comfort him. And I did find that to be touching. Um, one thing I wish that would happen is I wish that we had some conversations between Vivi and Zidane here because Vivi's gone through the exact same thing earlier in the game. And if there's anybody who would be able to help Zidane through this more than just coming up and saying like, Hey, we're actually, we're really your friends. It would be Vivi, but it doesn't happen. And I, I found myself wishing like, Hey, Vivi's got the answers here. He's been through all of the entire cycle, the entire, uh, you know, stages of this, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen. It's just kind of like, like you said, Zidane gets mad. He storms off. You fight some bosses alone and then friends start to join in. The music that's playing here is really good, uh, which definitely helps the emotion in a scene like this, but yeah, kind of fumbled a little bit here in a, in a point that's supposed to be a, a climactic moment after that you fight uh, a kind of a boss rush at the end um i was playing this straight without cheats up until this point um, when you fight kuja i was not under leveled uh, because you fight a few bosses before kuja you fight garland and you fight the silver dragon um, i beat them no problem kuja killed my entire team before i had a chance to do anything and i was like this is bullshit JRPG bosses have a bad tendency to do this, especially late in the game. 
uh, to give you really bad difficulty spikes. And I just turned on the cheats and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done with this uh, combat specifically, but I also want this game to be over. I just want to see the end of the story. So I turned on the nine, 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 nine cheat for the rest of the game, which is not that long. It's a couple, uh, couple hours at the most. So yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. This is when I turned on the cheats for good during this Kuja fight. I, we didn't really talk mechanically about the bosses here, but did you guys um, struggle or have fun or anything notable w- with regards to these bosses at the end of the game? Because end game JRPG bosses can be a real thing. Yeah, I had fun, but when it came to, after Kuja, that's when I st- just suffered mainly. But <laughs> yeah, I just needed like you know some grinding like until like ten more levels, and yeah, that was it. I was finally able to beat Necron. It was just, dear Lord, just two turns and one go is just like a pain in the ass to deal with. Mm -hmm. I honestly, I really don't remember these ending fights. Like I remember fighting Hades, who was originally supposed to be the end boss. And I remember fighting the super boss Ozma, but I, I really don't remember this, this ending part. I think at that point I just wanted to see the story through. Yeah. Yep. Totally. But again, you, you can't just beat Kuja and have the game be over because this is a JRPG and that's not how JRPGs work. So I will ask both of you guys, cause I was kind of checked out at this point. What, why do we fight Necron? What is Necron? Why are we fighting it? So Necron's whole deal is that he is a deity that exists like beyond good and evil. He, he is a representation of what, life uh, he he represents life ending right and he says all life wants to end so he represents this idea of a circular and cyclical uh progression of life which as a concept is cool i just don't like how they implemented it here their um persona 3 which i'm not going to spoil the ending of persona 3 but they do a very similar thing um with the same thematic material same kind of deal, but the way that they set it up is so much better than Necron kind of popping just out of nowhere. Yep. Had they played with this idea of all life wants to, they've played with the idea of life and death. They've played with the idea of, you know, everybody lives, everybody dies. They never really talked about this cyclical notion though, that Necron is supposed to represent. So I, it's not the most egregious thing, but like it makes me wonder why they even ditched Hades as as a final boss. Like they 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 have this motif throughout the game of eyes, and you can see this like the Invincible has a giant eye on its underside. That's like part of it. The room where you fight Necron has a bunch of eyes, if I remember correctly, and Hades' design has like eyes on his throne. So like I, why they ditched Hades is beyond me and just turn him into a hidden little boss. That's not even that hard compared to, you know, everything else. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. Um, (laughs) Persona three did it better. That's, I mean, that's all I have to say about it because it's a JRPG and by law, you're required to have one boss uh, higher in scope than is necessary. And that boss is required to be a God of some court of some sort. So there we go. Yeah. So uh, you defeat Necron last minute villain and uh everything is collapsing around kuja's defeated kuja falls down into the um the tree uh zidane 
kind of feels a kinship toward Kuja now and and decides to go back and rescue Kuja and everything kind of gets destroyed and we don't see what happens. And then this is the end of the game. We get our, our resolutions uh, for the cast. We're back in town in uh, Alexandria. Vivi is gone. Vivi ran out of time, but there are lots of little baby Vivis running around on the street. Um, same uh, distinctive like design as Vivi, not just you know generic black mages. So safely assume they're little baby Vivis. I like I said before, I don't know how that happened, and I don't want to know. They're just there. So, um, Garnet is now queen of Alexandria with Steiner and Beatrix as her guards, and Tantalus comes and performs. Um, I believe it's the same performance as the beginning of the game. I want to be your canary. I think <laughs> they're very good at that one play. Yeah, that's they travel from town to town doing "I want to be your canary," and then. They, they're so good at it because, again, they're not there to entertain. They're there to steal shit, right? So they just want to put on their best show and, yeah, move on. It'd be like going to see Rick Astley, and he just does never going to give you up 14 times and then leaves the stage. So after the performance, the lead actor is revealed to be Zidane uh, in disguise. Um, he has not had any contact uh, with Garnet since the whole deal at the tree. Uh, he reunites with Garnet. They kiss um, Steiner and Beatrix hold up a sword that kind of like catches the sunlight. It's a really beautiful scene um, at the end. Great little like fairy tale ending here. Yeah, really enjoyed this. Um, and despite how kind of checked out I was for the last couple hours, this ending was really, really sweet. Uh, brought me to tears um, just as a culmination of some of those unresolved stories uh, like Zidane and, and Garnet obviously falling in love. Yeah, um, well, I definitely love the ending. The way, like, when Zidane was, like, well, pretty much, like, acting out the play as the hooded figure, I was just saying, well, wait a minute, it has to be him, isn't it? And sure enough, it was him. And just, like, the whole reveal overall, I was just like, it's, like, the perfect way to, like, end the game. Like, at least Garnet uh, realizes who it was after all the time. Just the way she ran to him, not caring about the... Well, I guess the guard that she's like uh, that fell off her, right? And then pounding on her, I mean pounding on the uh, day, like angry that he was like gone for so long, but then just happy overall, like melting into his arms. I was like, that was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Rick, any thoughts about the ending there? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I think it, I don't, it couldn't have ended another way, and it was a touching ending. I mean, it ended exactly how it had to. And I think that's great. Yeah. Very nice too, uh, that Vivi is giving a little soliloquy, like a voiceover kind of thing as the ending is playing out. Nice touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he is dead. Like, right. You did mention that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Vivi's gone. Yeah. Vivi ran out of time. I think I said Vivi's gone, uh, which was in my head meant he's dead, but he did run out of time. Vivi's dead, uh, but he lives on with all the little baby Vivi's. So yeah, it was a, a really nice, um, really nice ending really kind of brought me back from, like I said, not really being into the last several hours of the story, but the ending was like the conclusion of the parts that I was invested in. So I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, just really happy with, this replay, I said it before, but I, I'm just, I'm really happy. Like you ever like 
you know, there's a, there's a widely acclaimed game that a lot of people you like talking about games with, or people whose opinions you trust, like they really love it. And you just don't. And you're like, man, what is, what am I missing? I'm really glad that I got it. Like that. I got it this time with final fantasy nine. This is why I have tried dark souls one multiple times (laughs) at multiple different points in my life is because like so many people whose opinions I respect say that it's amazing but every and I've I have tried that game three separate times like over the period of five years. Mm-hmm. So like I'm I'm trying and I'm going to try it again because I own it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to be 55 and booting up Dark Souls one being like, hey, what am I missing? Here? Yeah, maybe this but time no, I'm, I'm in the right headspace for it. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, I, I don't want to say that's part of the reason I've I've tried games like Xenogears, but like because I would have tried them anyway, but a lot of games that I would have put off a little longer, I might hear people talking about, um, and then, Oh, okay. Give it a try. And turns out oh, it's amazing. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think if I were going to make a list of the games like that, where it was like, I don't like this game. So many people that I respect their opinions about really love it. I have to try it again. You know, I have to see what other people see in it. If I were to make that list six months ago, Final Fantasy IX would have been at the top or at least in the top three, something like that. So again, I'm glad that I glad that I had a much better time this time around and I can appreciate um, what, like you and Eric, if you're still listening out there, what, what you guys see in it and um, uh, people like Alejandro, who we lost uh, connection with, Um, but, uh, what everyone who enjoys this game saw in it. So I'm happy I saw it. Um, yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. We have lost Alejandro. Alejandro, we love you, buddy. We hope everything's okay. I mean, we know your phone just died. It's okay. But, um, thank you for coming (laughs) out of time. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on and, uh, Rick, thank you again. Uh, every time you come on is always great conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm happy to be here, especially talking about one of my, most important games of all time. Yeah. So everybody listening, thank you very much. Um, if you have anything to say about Final Fantasy IX or want to share your thoughts on um, our opinions here, Tales from the Backlog Discord server is a great place to do it. Thank you again. I appreciate you very much. Tune in next week for the next game that comes out of the backlog. <laughs>